straight from the man cave Kinnick under the kitchen. Authentic, original player artwork is being drawn up for Hawkeye fans everywhere. Locally made prints of stars wearing the black and gold from the past, present, and future. How about current Hawkeye superstars Cooper DeGene and Tori Taylor? Legends of the past like Jack Campbell, Spencer Lee, and Tim Dwight plus future phenoms like Aaron Graves. There are so many options available. They make great gifts, and your purchase benefits the Hawkeye athletes wearing the black and gold. Visit Under the Kitchen on Facebook or at Under the Kitchen's new website. That's underthekitchen.square.site. Again, that's underthekitchen.square.site. Check out Under the Kitchen today and get your authentic, original Hawkeye print. Corey Brada here from the Hawkeye of the Storm, a live edition of Hawkeye Hangout featuring Hawkeye fans across the country, across the world, hopefully. And um, the one and only coach, Don Patterson, who joins me on a Monday evening. Don, appreciate you being here on a uh, kind of a different setting with a bye week in our rear view mirror and talking about a trip to Wrigley Field this next Saturday. How'd you enjoy a week off? Well, we were busy. Um, as you know, worked up Northern Iowa at Illinois State. Really good game to, to call, a close win for Northern Iowa. So uh, it was a fun game to do and and um, gave us a chance to see the open road a little bit between here and here in uh, normal Illinois. All right, let's get let's address the elephant in the room. By the way, I was kind of being cynical when I said your weekend off because I knew you actually worked a little bit, probably a little bit harder than you normally would on a, on a normal weekend in the fall. But <laughs> let's talk about the big news today, Don. Uh, news broke here uh, earlier in the afternoon. In fact, uh, rumors swirling late into the weekend, early into Saturday morning, and then finally, um, Iowa AD Beth Getz releasing a statement <laughs> publicly um, that uh, Iowa offensive coordinator Brian Ferentz would not be retained heading into the 2024 season. Uh, I did about a <laughs> half hour show earlier today talking about the news and just what it means moving forward. Uh, my reaction to the decision to make this move at this point in the season with four games left in the year. Of course, he will continue to coach and be a part of this program uh, through the last month of the year and then heading into whatever postseason play they uh, enjoy. They will head to a bowl game at the minimum. But uh, what was your initial thought when you got wind of this and, and did it take you, did it blindside you at all? I was um, a little surprised. I didn't expect it to happen. And uh, it's obvious, Corey, I've been as, as frustrated as anyone, I guess, with the struggles for the offense. Uh, and yet, having said that, my heart really goes out to Brian because, um, you know, Brian bleeds black and gold. He does. Uh, you know, he cares dearly about Hawkeye football, and and uh, both he and Kirk, when when um, the staff changes were made and Brian had his new duties, uh, both of them uh, wanted things to work out smoothly, of course, and not just for the benefit of of um, Brian and Kirk directly, but for the benefit of Iowa football. And it's disappointing, I'm sure, that it hadn't worked out as as Brian hoped. Um, but let's give Brian and, and Kirk credit for for putting the interests of Iowa football ahead of their own uh, their own personal interests. It's not easy to admit a big competitor 
it's not easy to admit that things haven't gone as as we need them to. And I give him credit um, for deciding that that they have to do what's in the best interest of Iowa football. And at this point, that would mean different leadership on offense. Um, and it was easy for me to to share with anybody that cared to listen. Uh, more than anything, I want Iowa football to win these next four games, and I'd love for Brian to have one more opportunity to coach in, in Indy in a, in a conference championship game. And that's a realistic goal. Of course, we can talk about the race and how, how it all stacks up as we get into the program, but but uh, that's what I hope for Brian, and that's what I hope for Kirk. That's what they deserve. I can tell you the, the response that you're going to get from people in the chat, Don. Um, in response to your comment, I think what you just said is totally fair. It does sound like this was not Brian or Kirk's decision, though. Based on what we got from Beth Getz today and based on the information I've heard, it does not sound like this was something that Kirk or Brian agreed with. So I'm not uh, not saying, I mean, at some point, um, Beth has to do what's best for the program as well. And I give her credit, ultimately, if the decision came down to her having to make the final one, somebody had to do what was right for the program in general, whether that was directly Brian Kirk or Beth. I agree. This had to happen. I, I, I feel for Brian. Absolutely. I think it's unfortunate that this all went down the way it did. Um, it's very similar in a way. Maybe it's unfair to compare him to this, but I think about what happened with Nebraska and Scott Frost. Um, you know, he's always going to be looked at. I mean, obviously, he had a historic career at Nebraska, but he's always going to be remembered for his failures as a head coach at Nebraska. Right. And if he never had come back to coach at Nebraska, he would not have that legacy. Even if he failed somewhere else, he'd always be the favorite son, so to, so to speak. And unfortunately, Brian was a solid player at Iowa. In fact, he had a solid career when he was when he took over I believe is what O-line coach here. Um, he coached tight ends, coached O-line. Uh, those units were pretty good under Brian Ferentz. Now, I'm sure credit Correct. him, but it's just unfortunate. I wish that it hadn't happened the way it did to where Brian is elevated to OC at Iowa. Um, and because this is how his legacy is going to go down at Iowa, and it's just unfortunate. Yeah, I agree with you. And to use an analogy, if I'd been asked at some point in my career to be an offensive line coach, uh, I don't know how well that would have worked, you know, because that wasn't my background. And I think Brian had that same issue when he became a coordinator. You know, it's difficult. If you've never been directly involved with play calling on offense, then it's that much tougher, I think, to become a good play caller. Okay, um, we're going to be talking to people at least for the next hour. I've got to keep this show relatively short because I went three and a half hours earlier than did the half-hour basketball show a little bit ago, Don, so I know you'll you'll probably be fine with cutting this thing a little bit shorter than normal. Um, but obviously, this is the big news item. We do have a, a football game to talk about this coming Saturday against a Northwestern team that has proven to be dangerous and a team that has proven that it can beat Big Ten competition, including a, a decent Maryland team and a Minnesota team that beat Iowa here two weeks ago, or a little uh, a little over two weeks, or a little under two weeks ago, excuse me. So uh, we're going to be taking calls, taking comments. We've got Ryan and Clayton on hold. If you want to talk to Coach Patterson, uh, I mean, I can obviously converse, but I was on for three and a half hours earlier. If you want to talk to Coach Patterson, the number 
to call in is on the bottom of the screen, 515-635-1601. You can also click the link in the description below this video on YouTube. Again, 515-635-1601 or join us by StreamYard. Let's add Ryan to the mix. Ryan, welcome to the show. Good evening, gentlemen. Thanks for taking my call. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Coach. Hey, Corey. Haven't talked to you in a long time, but I hope all's well with you and the fam. Been a few uh, hours. A couple hours, yeah. It's been a few minutes. Hey, uh, in light of everything, and we hashed it out, but uh, Coach, is it fair to ask you if uh, you were a betting man, what percentage the end game in this, at least for the next year, as Kirk stays and accepts reality? Maybe he gets Paul Christ or somebody like that. Um, any ideas how this might end up? And I, I don't want to ask you anything that you're not comfortable with at answering. I really don't have any good idea of how this might all play out. Um, you know, it's even if Kirk and I discussed it, I wouldn't wouldn't share that of course discussion, discussion with anyone else. Uh, but the reality is, we haven't, and and we may not, and that's up to Kirk, of course. But um, Kirk's shown a lot of good judgment through all these years, and I think he'll display good judgment going forward too. So um, I don't know what's going to happen next. I'd like to think that we still have the inside track in getting to Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's much doubt that that um, the Gophers, is that right? Yeah. No, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, the Gophers. That's right. Their game 11 is at Ohio State. I'm pretty confident that Ohio State's going to find a way to win that game in the shoe against Minnesota, and that will give Minnesota their third loss. And and if um, if we can hold serve for these four games, if we can find a way to win each of them, <clears throat> then that's the only team that stands in our way. And Ohio State could help us out. And at that point, we'd be co-champs, and we'd yeah. represent because of our head-to-head -head win. So I think it's entirely possible that we earn our way uh, back to Indianapolis, I realize that's a tall order because we haven't won one in a row, much less four in a row. Um, but I think we'll have the right approach. You know, we'll approach it one at a time. Think of it as a hurdle race, and we got four hurdles left. And the only way to guarantee that you get over all four hurdles is to focus on that next hurdle. And so we only have our focus on Northwestern, no one else. And if we can jump over that hurdle, then we can move on to the next one. Interesting you say that, Coach, because I agree with everything you said, and obviously not, no one's guaranteeing we're going to win out up to the bowl game, but it's entirely possible. In, yep. your in your mind, Coach, who's our quarterback, number 11, number 5, or number 10? By the way, I gave you in my personal order. You listen to number 5 first? No, number 11, then Wait, number 11 five. First. Absolutely. At this well, point, absolutely. Number 11, number 5, and I think my distant third has got to be, you know, the chosen one in this circumstance, number 10. Well, first of all, let me just say this. Uh, I agree with number 1. Uh, number 11. Yeah, n number 1 on your list, number 11 jersey. I know, of course. I got you. 
number one in your heart, though, too, right, Corey? <laughs> yes. I will say this. We're all aware of the fact that a freshman can play in up to four games without losing a year of eligibility. So if we're lucky enough to get a comfortable lead in any of these four games, it seems logical that we would absolutely take a look at number 11. Um, and, and truthfully, it wouldn't bother me if we gave him a limited playlist and put him out there when the game was in doubt because I am curious as to how he would play. I have a hard time seeing Iowa building. I Just to be frank, I have a hard time seeing Iowa blowing anybody out to where you're able to put in guys like Marco Linez when the game is not in doubt. If you're going to put in... God forbid he throws for 50%. Yeah, I mean, at this point, Don, um, I don't know. Well, let's not forget, just, just less than a year ago, uh, we had two defensive scores against Kentucky. We also had two scores, non-traditional touchdowns against Rutgers. So it is possible that we, we um, by virtue of our excellence on defense and in the kicking game, it is possible that we pick up some extra points there. Could you just imagine Cooper DeGene doing what Cooper DeGene does and then gets, I don't know, 15 offensive plays, seven or eight touches? Just what could happen? I mean, you're talking Heisman, Charles Woodson, plus special teams, all of that good stuff. I mean, a guy can, you know, just imagine, right? Well, part of our problem, as both of you know, is we typically are on the field more on defense than we are offense. We have a hard time staying on the field offensively. And there are times when we've had a hard time getting off the field with our defense. So Cooper invariably gets more snaps than any offensive player, and then you factor in the kicking game and punt returns and punt coverage. Um, it's a lot of snaps, and and we certainly don't want to try to play defense without number three. Agree. It's just a few, you know, maybe targeted plays to shake things up because yeah, just a few. Little... He's our most talented player. You get your ball in your most talented player's hands when. Frankly, you three and out yourself to death and kill your defense. Well, to use a military term, you're talking about using Cooper with maybe what we might want to classify as a surgical strike, huh? Hey, exotics, you know, scratch where it itches. Let's do it. We have to. And you know what? I don't think there's a legitimate Hawkeye fan alive that would be upset that Cooper made – two or three big plays or plays alone on offense when 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 it mattered. He's our best player. He can weave through. Get him in space. Just get him in space. See what happens. He can handle a hit. He's well, done it he his whole career. He, he proved this past Saturday he doesn't need space. That's the other thing he proved. And a man with it, right? I mean – Obviously, you're not going to use Caleb Brown, who's, I guess, on paper, our, the highest recruit out of high school that ever played wide receiver outside of Willie Guy, I guess. But um, you're not going to use him, evidently, for whatever reason. It is what it is. But, I mean, we got to get some talent going. We got to get our talent that we is on our team working for us. And I don't care if it's Vines, I don't care who it is, Ostrega, uh, um, Austin, Austin guy. He had a really nice game too. You know, little good blocking, beautiful catch. We we, we got to just develop. 
That's yeah, let's face it. This deep in the season, we need to try to try to explore all options in terms of making big plays because explosive plays do matter. They matter Absolutely. a lot. Absolutely. But we can't continue to live off, you know, barely beating bad teams and playing down to them. Um, you know, there's a lot of examples of that. And, you know, so long as you win, you're okay, I guess. But, you know, Minnesota showed it's not sustainable and it's going to get less and less sustainable as the format changes. So with that, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. All right, Don, I knew these comments would come in here. Brian says, Don, do you think this was Kirk or Brian's decision? I honestly don't know. The One, one thing that confused me a little bit, Best comment did mention that this is not the way she typically likes. I forget exactly how it was phrased, but she suggested it's not her nature to to um, make any changes within the season during the regular season. So that made me wonder: uh, is it in fact Brian's idea? Is it Kirk's idea? Is it the university president's idea? I don't know, uh, but it was clear that in my in my way of thinking, the way her her uh, statement read, it's not the way she preferred to operate. So I don't know if that means she didn't. Who was the ultimate decision maker? Was it the university president or was it was it someone else? I don't know. Yeah, here's what here's the official statement from Beth Getz. We read this earlier. She says anyone who loves Iowa football recognizes both the successes and challenges that have brought attention to our program this season. Our struggles on offense coupled with the offensive coordinator's contract make this a unique situation. After conversations with head coach Kirk Ferentz, coach Brian Ferentz, and President Wilson, I informed Brian that our intention is for him to be with us through the bowl game, but this is his last season with the program. Making this known today is in the best interest of the program and its loyal fans. It provides clarity during this pivotal time in the schedule. It is not my practice to be involved in assistant coaching decisions and certainly not to make public such a change during a season our priority is to put all our student athletes in the best position to have both short-term and long-term success on and off the field our football team is a group of outstanding young men and talented athletes who at six and two have a lot to play for as a former athlete i know every opportunity to put on the jersey is a cherished one as hawkeyes let's continue to support all our coaches staff and student athletes in their pursuit of a big 10 championship and bowl game victory so, Don, uh, just to recap, when she says, uh, it, you know, again, none of us, we're, we're all breaking this uh, statement down. But when we see Beth say, uh, it is not my practice to be involved in assistant coaching decisions uh, and make it such a change during, uh, make a change public during a season. Right. That tells me that this is not, these are not normal circumstances, right? Um, I, yeah. I don't, I don't that, interpret. That doesn't necessarily mean that it was, it still wasn't her decision. Right. That's how she I might say I'm simply going against um, the way I would normally operate, but I think it's necessary. Absolutely. And obviously, she said, you know, in that uh, second paragraph that uh, um, she informed Brian that that's the, the decision. So, you know, uh, based on what Tom Kakert said earlier on this very show, Kirk is not happy about this right now. And Don, I don't think anybody would be happy about it. And most head coaches want to think, hey, I've got control of who's on my staff. But that's right. where it gets slippery and where it gets dicey. And 
unsteady and uncomfortable when you have a relative on your staff that's not performing up to expectation. Yeah, here's the reality. You know, any number I as a head coach, and I'm sure Kirk's done it before, and Hayden certainly did it any number of times. Bill Snyder, anybody else that's ever been a head coach, <clears throat> you might from time to time remind an assistant coach, uh, I want to remind you that you serve at my leisure. You have a job here because I've invited you to have a job here. And I do have the authority to to uh, replace you with someone else. Uh, and, of course, if a head coach can say that, then certainly an AD can say it, or for that matter, a university president can say it too. So they're all in the chain of command, and they all have the authority. Any of those three individuals have the authority to make that kind of decision. A couple comments here. D. Rellison with the Super Chat. Thank you here. Uh, Minnesota loss was the last straw. Iowa will hire a great OC. Well, I sure hope so. Sure hope so. We can talk about Coach Patterson's thoughts on that position here moving forward. Uh, Brody said, with the Super Chat says, I'm as happy to see Brian to go as the next guy, but Coach brought up some good points. You know the man bleeds black and gold. Got to be the toughest thing this human being has ever gone through in life. I feel for the man. Good practical way of looking at it. We don't have to be... Everybody knows me. I've been very critical of Brian. I'm very cr critical of Kirk over the last three years and how this offense has operated. But I've made very clear over and over again, nothing personal against either people. And yeah, you feel for somebody when they get fired. I made the comment earlier today. You don't want people to get fired. But I think it's fair. And I'll say it. I don't need you to say it, Don. But uh, this had to be done. This, this was the this, I believe, in my opinion, had to be done for the best interest of the program. And uh, it does sound like it was a decision ultimately that was made above Kirk Ferentz's uh, authority here. And um, again, it's just unfortunate. I think we can all agree the situation was very unfortunate. And hopefully this can be put behind us. I'm sure Brian will find a job somewhere, Don, because he does have a resume as a tight ends coach in the league, coaching O-line in, in, in uh, college. Um, he briefly coached running backs, I believe. He's going to be able to figure out wherever he goes. He's going to be able to make a good living, and he's made a good living at Iowa so far. Correct. Now, CJ in the chat wants to know. Thank you, Brody, for the super chat. CJ says, "Can you ask Don? Is it different coaching, a different coaching perspective, coaching inside of press box to down on the field? It seems like Brian got worse when he made that move. We've talked about that, Don. Um, yeah. I don't know why that wasn't tinkered with. You would think maybe that would be. I'm not saying that that was the issue at hand." But you would think desperate times come for desperate measures. We never saw Brian attempt to transition back to a press box role. Um, is that something that uh, you thought about as far as maybe something that could have been done before such a decision was made? Well, no, there's no doubt about this. It's a from a play calling standpoint, it's it's more difficult to do it on the sideline. <clears throat> now, as an offensive coordinator. Uh, my job was up in the press box, of course. I was in the press box for all all 21 years that I worked for Coach Fry. And as you know, those last 20 were all in Iowa. And uh, I had a chance to observe Bill Snyder in the press box. I had a chance to observe Bill Brazier and Bob Elliott in the press box. And frankly, um, to me, it's more logical that your coordinator would be upstairs uh, because you need to be able to see the field. How can you make good calls if you can't see the field? And wouldn't be surprised to you, Corey, to hear that the sideline is very chaotic and it's not easy to make sound judgments 
as to how people are reacting to the play. You know, let's face it, if you're a little further away, a little further removed from the field, you can see all 11 players much better. So at the very least, you better have good intel coming from upstairs from someone. If you're a play caller on the sideline, some play callers on the sideline have been very successful. So many others, I think, do a great job because they are removed a little bit from the chaos of the sideline. And um, I know I appreciated being able to spread my information out, being able to access a lot of information that was within arm's length, either to my left or right or directly in front of me. And that's the luxury you have when you're up in a press box. Why is Phil Parker able to be successful without being in a press box? Well, there are some advantages to having a coordinator on the sideline. Uh, the most obvious is uh, Phil's coaching the back end. He has a chance to interact with his players in a short amount of time. Every time they come off the field, he can look them in the eye. Uh, and I think even Phil Parker would tell you, I'm not going to be very effective unless I have somebody that services me with the set of eyes upstairs. I don't know who that somebody is on defense, but somebody's giving him good intel from, from upstairs because I think even Phil would tell you it's difficult to see things from the sideline. you got to have good advice from, from on high. Okay, um, STM basketball, did you not expect it to happen at all, Don, or did you just not expect it this week? Well, I'm certainly surprised that it would happen here. Um, frankly, I would have expected it to be more likely last week during the bye week than another game week. Um, but to be honest with you, I didn't think anything would happen until after, after the regular season was done. And, um, of course, it would depend a lot on what happens these next – three weeks before we play that last of the four games remaining. So, um, yeah, I fully expected that nothing would happen until after the regular season was done. Okay. Um, Jake in the chat, what was the point in coming out with this news today instead of waiting until the season is over to announce it? Uh, Tom Caker brought up an interesting point earlier when I asked him this question, Don, and I think it's fair with the early signing period in December uh, and the potential of players entering the transfer portal when the window opens right after the end of the regular season, there is a bit of an onus on administrators to potentially give those players, both those uh, high schoolers plus the guys that could potentially decide to enter the portal, reason to reconsider a non-Iowa decision prior to December. Is that maybe part of why it's beneficial to make a move prior to the end of the year? That could be part of it. Uh, maybe part of it, too. I don't know precisely what the thinking was, but it wouldn't be hard to imagine that, you know, in a strange sort of way, the fact that the decision has been made maybe takes a little bit of pressure off the offense. In other words, maybe now they can relax. If they, if they realize it's already been settled, maybe there are some even, who knows exactly what the individual mindset might be on any given, with any particular player. But maybe there are some people on the team that actually – you know, I'll give you an example. Maybe this actually helps because Deacon now feels like, well, you know, at least uh, Brian's job is not in my hands anymore. You know, Brian's going to be coaching somewhere else next year. And maybe in that regard, maybe it'll even free up Brian to be a, a little more free willing with the way he calls the game. Uh, I don't know. It's really hard to know what the effect might be. But it, it could certainly maybe take a little pressure off the offense to know – this has already been settled, so now let's let's just try to go out and execute and be as good as we can be with these 
passing week, but at least we don't have to feel like Brian's job is at stake because that decision's already been made. Let's go back to our phone line. Clayton is on hold. Clayton, welcome back. Hey, Corey. Thanks for taking my call again. Absolutely. Hey, uh, actually, the chat kind of answered a couple of my questions. So uh, okay. we're uh, rolling with that, I guess. Uh, Coach Don, I do have a question for you, though. Um, now that Brian is, you know, he's not on the hot seat, he's on the dead seat he's gone um how do you think that changes the way that he calls games do you think that it um alters his mindset and maybe we see a little bit more uh risk out of his offense i think it's entirely possible uh now i don't think we're going to go crazy with our play calling don't get me wrong but but in some ways the pressure's off you know brian's going to be working somewhere else let's put it this way there are some people out there that really think our problems offensively are not so much with Brian as with Kirk. You've heard that theory that Kirk controls the offense and Brian would be a better play caller if he didn't have to listen to his boss all the time about how to call a game. Well, now he's not going to be in that same capacity next year. So maybe now, if that were the case, of course, and you can tell by the way I'm talking, I don't think that is the case. Uh, I do think Brian's given a lot of freedom with how to call a game, but now he's uh, a little more inclined to, to be a little more aggressive with his play call, and I think that's entirely possible. Yeah, what you said there, Coach, was, uh, you know, a, a lot of folks that uh, are beyond the Kirk era have not, you know, experienced the Kirk era. A, a lot of them are, you know, following football for 10 years or so. They haven't been in it like we have my first game that I witnessed was uh, 1998 or 1999 against Indiana in Kinnick stadium. And that was Kirk Ferentz first year. And um, it, it was a terrible year. It was horrible. But um, what my point is, you know, some of the people that want Kirk's head is because they haven't followed the program long enough to understand what he's done for this, for this uh, community. But um, I, I appreciate your guys' time, and I'll, I'll kind of just leave it at that. Well, what you've said is really true. Um, you know, there's so many people that – I'm going to say it this way. Anybody that knows Kirk very well at all will not hesitate for a second to comment on what high character he has, what a good man he is, uh, what kind of leadership he's given this program, what kind of stability we've had as a result of Hayden and Kirk now for 45 years. Uh, pretty amazing when you think about it. And um, as you know, it's we don't have the same recruiting footprint of Ohio State or Michigan. So it's it's not the world's easiest job. Let's face it, you know, you, you can't just do it with in-state players. You've got to have success recruiting outside the state. And, um, and uh, of course, maybe more important than recruiting success is being really, really adept at develop, developing those players once you have them. And recruiting players, uh, and it's also so important, recruiting players with great character that you know are going to give you everything they have, not just for a, a few weeks in the fall, but really 52 weeks a year.
Yeah, and I I really believe that that our team, you know, we're, we're missing one one thing, but the one thing we're missing is a pretty important thing. It's offense, you know, and um, it what what Iowa team have you heard of that had all three facets really really going? And there might be a couple, but it's not it's not. Well, I want to what, encourage yeah, her to talk. I was just going to say, I'll admit this, and Corey's heard me talk about it. I just reflect back on the three championship teams we had, 1981, 1985, 1990. All three of those teams had one thing in common. They were really, really good on defense. They were really, really good in the kicking game. And, oh, by the way, really, really good on offense, too. Uh, I can't say that about the 81 team. You've heard me publicly say, Corey, this team reminds me a lot of the 81 team because we weren't that good on offense. 85 and 90 were different. We were really good on both offense, defense, and kicking game, all three areas. Uh, and the beauty of having a team like that, that's how you win championships because sometimes the offense bails out the defense, sometimes the defense bails out the offense, and sometimes the kicking game is the difference in the game as well. So um, that's been especially true with our 85 and our 90 teams, both exceptional yeah. teams that were good on both sides. And and the aggravating is the aggravating thing is, Coach Don, is that we only need an offense that is adequate. We don't need one that is amazing. And it, it, it's not hard to come by if you have the right coaching staff, the right personnel, which I believe we had the right personnel. Um, just you know, I think you see where I'm going there. It, all we need is adequate. We do not need amazing on offense for this right. year, 2023. If we had an offense that was in the middle of the pack, that's the middle of the pack, I guess officially would be ranked 66 or 7. Corey, is that right? Are there, how many teams are there now? 132, 133? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think one. Well, I think 133. 133. So 67 would be in the middle. 67 would have you averaging, I don't know, maybe close to 30 points a game. Certainly over 25, right? I think 25 would put you at about 80-something. So you'd be averaging high 20s, if not low 30s a game. And then, of course, uh, the yardage to go with that, which would probably be, I'm guessing, uh, at least 375 per game or more. Considerably higher than where we are now, of course. Um, but, you know, the upgrade wouldn't – it would be significant because – you know, to average 10 points more per game is, is significant, but it could be done. And the point you made is, is an accurate one. You don't have to be in the top 20 offensively to do that. You just need to be at least average to a slightly above average. That would get it done. Yeah, I appreciate your guys' time. And I'm, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with Northwestern. I don't see us losing to them, but, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Thank you for the call, Clayton. Appreciate it, sir. Um, okay, so Iowa Hawk in the chat says, uh, Kirk has earned the right to decide when he wants to be done. Anyone who thinks otherwise needs to check themselves. I agree. I absolutely agree. He earned, has earned the right um, to decide what he uh, what he wants to do. Um, the bottom line is they've been winning a lot of games, Don. And it's fair because of the situation with Brian. It has been fair for people to question whether it's okay for Brian to continue as the OC here. He's also right. the son of Kirk Ferentz. There's a difference there. But um, 
as far as Kirk is concerned, and until they stop winning games, I mean, they're six and two right now. You could argue they should be seven and one. He's not on the hot seat, nor should he be. And um, just got word. I just saw this tweet from uh, our good friend Tom Kakert. Players will not be available tomorrow for their normal availability. Um, and it sounds like, based on everything I've been told, Don, it sounds like uh, Kirk's really making an effort this week to avoid any distractions for his players right now. I think that's true. Obviously, he doesn't want this to have a huge Im- have any kind of negative impact on, on Saturday's game. And so for that reason, I think it's safe to say um, he's going to be sure that that distractions do not exist. Brandon brings up Northwestern has been playing better. This is a dangerous game on Saturday, one that Iowa cannot take for granted, and Kirk realizes that. And yeah. uh, I'm sure here, – here's the thing about here's, – here's what I'll say, Don. As it relates to the situation and Beth Getz making this decision and leaving Brian in his position for an extra four to six games, all right, but depending on the Big Ten title game, et cetera, I think one reason, if you want to look at a positive, one thing you could argue that goes in Iowa's favor on this is that, yes, you are essentially firing, letting go of your offensive coordinator. However, this is not just some offensive coordinator. It's the son of Iowa's all-time winningest coach, right. a former player. So in that regard, Don, Brian's not going to be mailing it in the last five to six games of the year. No, I don't worry about that for a second. Absolutely not. And I'll give Brian, let me just say this. I know people think I've had people say, ah, you're just out for to get Brian. I never have had any vendetta against anybody, but certainly not Brian Ferentz. I will give Brian this. Uh, based on what I just said, he will coach hard for these last two months. I believe that. And he may not get the job done. The offense has not been good for three years. But if there's anybody that it's safe, and I don't want to say I don't want that to sound inappropriate, but if it's if you're comfortable allowing somebody to coach the rest of the year, even when that decision has been made that he's not going to continue with you moving forward, it would be a guy like Brian Ferentz who you have confidence loves the program. He loves the program. I mean, this isn't <laughs> he has not worked out as the OC, Don, but he loves the program. He's an Iowa alum. Yeah, he's not going to do anything over these next four games to undermine this football program. He's not going to do that to his dad. He's not going to do that to the program. So I give my parents credit for that. And I've had my differences with with Brian as far as just how he sees offense and, you know, kind of how he's interacted with the media. But but that I have confidence in, and I think that's uh, credit to to who he is as an Iowa Hawkeye. Brandon uh, says Northwestern's playing better. Yes. Can can we just briefly, and we're going to talk about that before we wrap up the show, Don, but – can you briefly talk about what you've seen out of Northwestern and I'm sure what Kirk has seen out of Northwestern. They've had an extra week to look at them. Yeah, I was hoping you would ask me um, about some specifics in the game. I've got a few notes here. Northwestern was impressive in beating Maryland 33 to 27. <clears throat> this is what's amazing to me. They sacked Maryland six times. Maryland, oh, by the way, has a mobile quarterback, much more mobile than number 10. That's a concern. They were plus two on turnovers. They also had 364 yards of total offense. Maryland had slightly more, but let's not forget, Maryland has a pretty explosive offense. 
They always have had. But when you look at explosive plays, guess who won that in that game on Saturday? Northwestern did. Northwestern had more explosive plays than Maryland. And that's against Maryland. a Maryland team that normally dominates their opponent even when they lose in explosive plays. Exactly. So what's amazing when you look at it, Maryland actually won slightly more um, more parameters than Northwestern did, but it was close. Uh, out of 25 parameters, Northwestern won 10, uh, Maryland won 12, and there were three ties. Um, but obviously both teams won some of the most important parameters. We know that turnover margin is important. Northwestern won that. We know that sacks are important. Northwestern won that too. We also know that red zone appearances are important. Northwestern won that as well. So uh, Maryland won their first year. But what impressed me so much in watching, I haven't seen the game start to finish, but I've seen the replay. I've, se I've seen the condensed version of the game, the 60-minute con uh, condensed version. Uh, I saw a bunch of Northwestern players that were playing with a lot of grit and a lot of determination that did show re uh, a lot of resilience. Uh, and the quarterback, by the way, uh, I left being very impressed with that young man. He he played a super game last weekend against Maryland. I think Maryland thought they would just show up and roll over Northwestern, but Northwestern had their ideas. And uh, that's the challenge we face. Uh, right now, uh, as the head coach said, he said, uh, our guys would prefer someone mentioned, do you realize this is another double-digit uh, favorite that you've been able to beat? The first one, I guess, I would assume must have been must have been uh, Minnesota, I guess, probably. Uh, so they beat Minnesota. They were double-digit favorites. They beat Maryland double-digit favorites. Oh, by the way, the way they beat Minnesota impressed me. They beat them 21 to nothing in the fourth quarter. Think about that. So when you win a game like that, that gives you a big boost in confidence. Um, I, I like to think back, Corey, I've seen, you remember the, the poster you've seen of birds in flight? Maybe you've never seen this poster, but I have. The caption is, they can because they think they can, right? Yep. How, how are birds able to fly? How does a bird leave the nest and, and, and fly? Well, they, before very long at all, they, they see their parents, I guess, flying, or at least mom or dad, whoever's tending the nest, and they think, why can't I do that? I, maybe I'm not quite ready in terms of maturation, but before very long in the nest, they're able to fly. Um, they can because they think they can. Right now, Northwestern's playing good football because they think they can. It's been reinforced. You know, when you knock off a team as a double-digit, when the other team's a double-digit favorite, that's a good way to boost your confidence level. And right now, Brendan Sullivan is playing at a high level of confidence. And, oh, by the way, you've always heard me talk about an ideal quarterback being able to extend plays. This guy can extend plays. Like, he, he threw for 265 against Maryland. He ran for 56 yards. And understand this, when he when he does by time, when he extends plays, he's prepared to run, but he's still, as he closes on the line of scrimmage, he's still looking for receivers downfield. And those receivers understand what to do in a flush situation they're not confused about where to go. Typically, they're either breaking deep down the field or they're coming back toward the line of scrimmage. It depends on what they need. If they need a big play, you can bet they're breaking deep down the field. And they've hit a lot of those plays, especially starting last Saturday. Uh, Nebraska did a great job of containing them the week before. I'll admit that. 
17 to 9 was that score. But let's not forget, I've been impressed with Nebraska's defense for a while now, and the numbers back it up. I don't know where they stand right now nationally, but it wouldn't surprise me if they're still top 20 in run defense, maybe top 20 in overall defense. I don't know. But I, I know this, when they played Illinois and beat Illinois at Illinois, I made the comment to you after that game, Corey, I'm very impressed with the athleticism of Nebraska's front seven. Uh, so, yeah, Nebraska was able to slow them down for sure. Uh, but let's not forget they played in Lincoln. And and that's going to be another tall assignment for us is to go to Lincoln and win. The day after Thanksgiving, there's a lot on the game. And the odds are there will be a lot riding on the game. So that's what we face up ahead. Northwestern has a high confidence level right now. We're going to have to shake that confidence. The only way to do that, of course, is go out and make plays against Northwestern on Saturday starting at 2.30. Northwestern, or excuse me, Nebraska. You mentioned Nebraska, the 13th ranked a total defense in the country. And as it relates to scoring defense, North, uh, excuse me, Nebraska, I keep saying Northwestern, Nebraska 21, so they're top 25 in each category. Um, and now they, we, we both admit, Don, that some of those numbers are inflated because they play in a conference that's not very good offensively, in a division that's not right. very good um, offensively. But uh, one thing you brought up about Northwestern, Don, and, and I don't have the schedule side by side, and I can certainly bring these up. But um, you know, they were getting they were getting beat handily by teams last year. And Correct. I know it's a different roster, but they don't have Pat Fitzgerald, who was long considered one of the best coaches in this conference, at one of the most difficult jobs in this conference. And all of a sudden, Northwestern's playing everybody, almost everybody, tough. Even you mentioned even the Nebraska game was a one score game. Um, what is different about what Nebraska looked like last year? And, of course, that was a team Iowa won very easily against in Kinnick. What's the difference between that team last year and what you're seeing from this team this year in 23? I don't know how many of those guys that played a year ago are are still back with us. I suspect the vast majority are. Uh, The quarterback's a good example. Uh, He actually played against us last year. I was surprised to read. I believe he played in five games a year ago. I think, again, it was tied to injury. Were you aware of that? It looked like you're surprised. Say that again. I'm sorry. He actually played, I believe, in five games last year. Uh, he actually played against us. And I was surprised to read his numbers actually were pretty good against us. I think he threw for 150, 160 yards. He ran for a modest amount. He threw for a high percentage. I think he threw for maybe 60% or so. Uh, you know, they didn't ask him to do much, but the bad news for us uh, he's a lot more seasoned quarterback than he was 12 months ago, too, because he's he's a year older, a year wiser. He's got more game experience. Uh, and he's playing football with more confidence now than he did a year ago. That makes him a better player. I think he's got teammates that are very much in that same that same trend, that they were trending upward, you know, from one year to the next. Uh, and I give the coach a lot of credit. I listened to his press conference today. I didn't know the first thing about him, but I was impressed with what he had to say today in that press conference. Uh, It's obvious that he's done a good job of instilling some confidence in those players. Those guys are bought in. Right now, he's been able to use that as a motivational tool to help Northwestern. Nobody believes in us. He made the comment, yeah, it was a double-digit point spread, but I've already told our players, you're the guys that can decide what the point spread is, not the people in Vegas. You're the ones that decide because you're going to determine the outcome of the game. So if the point spread was 
Maryland by 12. I don't know what the point spread was, but they were able to prove, well, that was inaccurate. That should not have been the point spread. We proved otherwise. So I'm sure we're favored right now, but it's probably less than double digits, I'm sure. So who are we to think that, that it's going to be an easy game? We know better. I'm confident those players representing Iowa will know it's not going to come easy this Saturday or any other Saturday that follows. We better be ready to bring our A game. We found out against Minnesota, anything less than our A game is not going to be good enough. Kyle in our private chat uh, threw in there, and I appreciate this, Kyle. Northwestern had a point differential of minus 157 in nine Big Ten games last year. That's a that's good for nine, or excuse me, 18 points per game. That is uh, mind-boggling, Don. And just to kind of remind people of what they were in 2022 with Pat Fitzgerald, their one win on this continent was against Nebraska. Or excuse me, their one win in the, during the season was on a different continent. Let me make sure yeah. I rephrase that whole thing. They won over in Ireland against Nebraska, 31-28, lost by 8 to Duke, lost by 7 to Southern Illinois at home, lost to Miami, Ohio at home, lost by double digits to Penn State, lost by 35 to Wisconsin, lost by 7 on the road at Maryland, maybe their best performance of the year if you look at that uh, overall and their losses, lost by 20, gave up 33 to a really bad Iowa offense in Kinnick. Uh, actually played Ohio State tough during a windy November 5th date in uh, Chicago, lost by 14 at home, lost by 28 to Minnesota, lost by 8 to Purdue, lost by 38 to Illinois, lost by 17 to Rutgers. Excuse me, now I'm in the 23. So far this year, 17-point loss to Rutgers. They come back, beat UTEP by 31, got blown out by Duke, competed hard against Minnesota, came back from, what you said, 21 down, forced overtime, one in overtime. Penn State lost handily to a really good Penn State team, beat Howard, competed against Nebraska, beat Maryland. This is a dangerous team. And I, I just um I did not expect that out of a squad that, you know, the perception around this program has long been, Don, that Pat Fitzgerald has kept them relevant. And it's a hard place to win. And maybe they will, you know, meander back into the Northwestern that uh, they were back when you were coaching in the Big Ten. Um, what was Northwestern like during the Hayden Fry era for people that weren't alive then? Well, there were some people that that um, if they wanted to be a little der derisive, is that the right word? Derisive toward Northwestern. Back in those days, sometimes they were referred to as the Mollicats rather than the Wildcats. That's it. Um, and as you know, there was a period of time when we absolutely owned those guys, uh, not just us, a bunch of other teams too. Uh, but I give, you know, the crazy thing of it all, if you didn't know better, you would say, this reminds me of any number of Pat Fitzgerald teams I've had in the past, a bunch of overachievers. You know, it's almost as if uh, Pat Fitzgerald is um, helping coach on the side or something, you know, giving the coach good ideas about what to say next because he's saying all the right things, I do believe. Um, Don wants, or excuse me, Bob wants to know Don's take on the play. Well, I feel kind of like that guy that was sitting behind home plate tonight in the World Series. Did you see him? I did see a picture of that. I did. And that one, for those that didn't see it that aren't baseball fans, he did hold up a sign at some point that said, how was it worded exactly, Corey? It, it was, was not, not. It was not a fair catch signal. 
I did like that. Uh, the big tiger hawk behind home plate. Yeah. By the way, I have not watched a second of the World Series. So who won tonight, Don? Is that game over? You know, I don't know. I watched up through about seven innings. The Rangers were up 3 nothing. Okay. For the record, I am a huge Ranger fan. I've been one for all 52 years of their existence. Uh, they've been in exactly two World Series. They didn't win either one of them. And, oh, by the way, when the, when the San Francisco Giants beat them, the manager for the Giants is the guy that's now the manager for the Texas Rangers. Bruce Boach is his name, and he's an outstanding manager. Uh, he's pushing all the right buttons for Texas now, I would say. Always a few people uh, that are on this show that always go out of their way to correct me. So apparently earlier on a live stream for Iowa and Quincy, the men's basketball exhibition game, Don, I made a comment that Belmont plays in the Ohio Valley. They now play in the Missouri Valley. So James had to reach out to me on Twitter to make sure I knew Belmont is in the Missouri Valley now. So uh, they are not in the Missouri Valley in football, right, Don? What, what, is, Belmont, what is Belmont football in uh, – I don't know that Belmont has a football team. They've got to have some football team. They may not be at – maybe they're not at CS, but you don't think so? I I, I honestly don't recall ever seeing a football score for Belmont. Now, I will admit, I don't don't see all the Division II and Division III scores, so maybe they do have a team. I don't know if they do or not. Tyler says Rangers win 3-1, to Don. Tyler, you've made my night. Thank you. I, I'm I'm T-going, and I'm going to see the last couple of innings when I'm done with Corey tonight. Good thing we didn't start earlier, Don, because we would have been uh, right in the middle of the World Series. I did not realize there was an overlap there. Uh, my uh, first my first loyalties, Corey, are to you and our, our listeners, so the, wow. the baseball game would have had to wait. Overcame, what, you said 52 years of, ran- of Rangers fandom, Don? How about that? Never won a World Series, but... Why not us? Why not now, right? Why not? And I'll, uh, I guess I'm a Dallas Mavericks fan, so uh, I'll be happy for the Rangers if they win. Uh, BC in the chat. I read Beth's comments that she was felt she was forced to make the decision due to Kirk Ferentz and Brian's, or excuse me, Barda's unwillingness to do what was obviously necessary themselves. Uh, so that's how BC kind of interpreted the move. Uh, Doc P. Don, what portal needs does Iowa need to address this offseason? I know we're not done with the season, but it's a fair question, Don. Um, we don't know what's going to happen as far as attrition via the portal. And could we see some change with this incoming recruiting class with this news from Brian? But what positions would you focus on at this point targeting in the portal about a month and a half out from that window opening? Well, the thing, the first thing that comes to mind for me was let's look at the seniors uh, that are leaving the program. And um, obviously, if, the, if, if we have great seniors, we need to be able to replace them with great players. And if we don't have them in the system already, in the program already, we better go out and find them in terms of the transfer portal. Good example this year was Nick Christian. Nick Christian. Why did I say that? I had a player named Nick Christian. Nick Jackson? Nick Jackson, yeah. I had a player at Western named Nick Christian, but Nick Jackson. Good example. You know, he was a proven proven success story at Virginia. Uh, He saw an opportunity to – play in the Big Ten, uh, and not just to play, but to, with just a little bit of luck to earn a starting position. Of course, he's done that, and he's been a good success story for us. So first thing I would look at is which of our players right now are, are key performers and they're not coming back. We need to look at and maybe we're – unless we just feel really good about a backup, then we maybe need to look to fill that particular need. Uh, one spot that obviously we need help, we need more playmakers on offense – 
so, you know, obviously you're looking for a, another challenge there, of course, is the question has been asked, why would a top-notch receiver be interested in going to play receiver at Iowa? And the obvious answer now is, well, is it hard for you to imagine that the offense next year is going to be uh, more than a little bit different than the offense this year? And I know some critics would say, well, it's the same head coach. So even if the play callers are replaced, it's still going to be a conservative uh, game plan, and, and it's going to be still controlled by the head coach. You might argue that. But it's not hard to imagine if we can get some game breakers uh, that can prove themselves as game breakers, then I can't believe for a second that we wouldn't make a real effort to get them the ball at every opportunity. Uh, you know, that's that's one reason. You've heard me say, Corey, uh, if you're not doing a good job of separating from your coverage or not doing a good job of catching a pass, then is it hard to imagine there might not be too many passes headed your direction? Or maybe you don't even get that many snaps to begin with. So you got to earn your way on the field. So I'm hoping we look for game breakers. I would like to think that it really doesn't matter that much how tall they are. I know in the past sometimes I think we've been a little bit preoccupied thinking all receivers have to be 6'3". And you heard me remind people, uh, Tim Dwight wasn't very tall, and I think he's pretty good. Uh, that guy, what's his name, Tariq Hill, is playing for Miami right now in the pros. He's not very tall. He's pretty good. How about Wardell? He's pretty good. He's not very tall either. Uh, Coach Fry famously said, you never weigh or measure a man when he crosses the goal line. Damon Gibson wasn't very tall when he played here, and he was exceptional. I had a guy that was five foot four at Western Illinois that returned to kickoff against Nebraska and caught him and had another punt return for 94 yards against Eastern, Eastern Michigan. You know, a, a couple of FBS schools that were on our schedule. Uh, he measured 5'4". If he was 5'9", everybody in the country would have recruited him. But because he was 5'4", we got him. And we made good use of him. Because, again, no one was measuring him when he crossed the goal line. Is it hard to imagine, Corey? He had really hot feet. Uh, he could change directions on a dime, and he had good, good acceleration. He had pretty darn good speed, too. So you can win with guys like that. Let's not assume they have to be 6'2". To make plays because the six two guys in general do not move their feet like a five ten or a six foot guy. Five four? Oh, uh, maybe five five then. How's that? I'll call him five five. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, Even Nebraska had a hard time catching him though. He returned a kick against Nebraska. That's not easy to do. We haven't had that many returned. Uh, okay, Jason in the chat this says, uh, Coach Patterson, do a DC and OC communicate very often during the games? For example, Phil is obviously very good at what he does. Would he go advise Brian Ferentz different coverages, strategies he sees from the opponent's defense? No, not going to happen that way, and I'll tell you why. Uh, when the defense leaves the field, uh, Phil Parker is talking to people down on the field about adjustments that must be made from one possession to the next. At the same time, of course, the offense is going on the field, so they're they're directly tied up at different times in affecting the play on the field to play, so there's simply not time to spend a lot of time discussing. There's no way that a coordinator on one side of the ball would recommend what needs to be done on the other side. Maybe during the week, if they if they were discussing, maybe they were looking at some video, uh, you know, they might casually uh, ask the other coordinator to come in, give me some ideas about how you'd attack this particular defense, this particular offense. Uh, you might see some of that during the week in game preparation, but probably not in the course of the game. Wouldn't happen. 
Erica Goldberg, thank you, Erica, for the super chat. How's Maryland's defense? Does Northwestern really have a good offense, or is that defense just bad? I just got you back, Corey. Are you waiting for me? Yeah. Did, what do you okay. think? What, what do you think about the Maryland D? Uh, you know, I think that's part of the problem. Maryland's notorious for uh, getting really uh, uh, tired and, and disinterested in the latter part of the season. They they're notorious for playing a, playing a good first half of the season and then and then running out of gas. It's happened. How many years has it not happened? It seems like it happens every year. Is that a is that a scheme thing that teams just kind of figure out what they're doing as the game goes as the year goes on or why the? the well, I think I think part of the problem is simply if you want to compare character, I'm not going to disparage the Maryland players, but I would suggest to you maybe they're not quite as high on the uh, on the character scale as as Iowa players. Uh, I think you win with character. You heard me say that, Corey. It is not easy to be at your best every Saturday for an entire football season. That is not easy to do. That is a huge commitment uh, because being at your best on Saturday involves practicing at your best during the week. Our players will tell you, we can't afford to have an off practice because how are we going to be better from one week to the next if we don't make progress during the week? Uh, that's the mindset the players and coaches have. Uh, and I would suggest to you that maybe Maryland doesn't get that done with the same consistency as we do. Maybe that's why they don't improve as the season plays out. Some teams seem to get better. Uh, you've, a good example is Northern Iowa. Northern Iowa, within the Missouri Valley Conference, they're notorious for playing really, really well in November. You don't want to play them in November because they're playing their best in November. Truthfully, every team should be playing their best in November because that's what it's all about is correcting your mistakes from one week to the next and being better as the season plays itself out. Thank you, Erica, for the super chat. Um, Cole, curious if Don has watched any Nebraska this year. I have. Care to share any thoughts on – I mean, you, you talked about their defense. They Statistically, they've been pretty darn good, especially compared to recent years. But um, how big of a threat are they to knock off Iowa in final week of the season on Black Friday? I think they absolutely are a threat to do so. It's going to be a difficult game. It's entirely possible that they'll go into the game as the favorite team. I think if they're not, it'll be a very, very tight point spread because Nebraska right now, correct me if I'm wrong, Corey, they're four and four also. Is that right at the moment? Uh, I know they I know they're tied with Iowa Big Ten record wise. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure what their season record is. I can't remember none conference. They're three and two in the conference, of course. Um yeah, you're right. I'm looking at the. I'm looking at the. Uh, well, I just lost it. Uh, right now, Nebraska's overall five and three in the conference. Three and two. Uh, excuse me, five and three. We're all three and two in the conference. Five and three. So, uh, pretty impressive. Think about this. Nebraska hadn't been to a bowl game lately, right? To do that in year one, that's impressive. Uh, and it also. So I, I haven't noticed this. Uh, put yourself in the shoes of some that are in the best maybe haven't been there too long is to imagine that try to model Iowa a little bit for all the success we've had in Kirk's years, or for that matter, even in a lot of Hayden's years. Uh, the one common theme in recent years it, with Iowa's key to success is outstanding defense, outstanding kicking game, and we'd like to believe at least a serviceable run game, right? So you think about it, 
And that's kind of how Nebraska is trying to play. Outstanding defense. They shored up their kicking game to some degree. They blocked the kick and ran it back last week. Blocked the field goal and ran it back for a touchdown, right? That's one of their scores in that game. Um, so, um, and they're running the ball with some regularity. Uh, let's face it, Minnesota's had that same mindset as us all along. They had a, a backup running back that carried the ball 40 times last weekend for 204 yards. Nobody saw that coming. I don't remember the – I can't even remember now who they played. Who did Minnesota play to, to win that game so convincingly? Who was that? Michigan State. Well, we know Michigan State's another one of those teams that, that tends to lose interest as the season plays out right now, right? That's part of their problem. So I give credit to P.J. for hitting them over the head with the running game and, and winning the Minnesota way, too. That's the way Minnesota, Minnesota's won in recent years. Outstanding running game, stingy defense. That's a pretty good formula for success in the Midwest. It's It's been work, good for us. It's been good for Wisconsin. It's been good for Minnesota. And is it hard to imagine that that uh, Nebraska might decide, you know what, maybe we're trying to throw the ball around too much a year ago or two years ago. And uh, this year is a more run-oriented offense than, uh, on the part of Nebraska. I think that's – probably suits our weather very well in the month of November. So we're going to have a lot of close, hard-fought games, I think, here in the month of November. All right, Don, Let's uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be right back uh, with the finale, whatever that entails. We've got Kyle waiting on hold. We've also got a caller on our phone line. Uh, we'll be right back with more. But first, a word from our sponsor, Iowa Floor Covering. They've been with us for quite some time. We appreciate Iowa Floor Covering. Uh, we will be right back after a word from our sponsor. To Iowa Floor Covering, a locally owned flooring store in Bondurant, Iowa, that specializes in do-it-yourself projects. If you're a contractor or a DIYer, Iowa Floor Covering has your back. Right now at Iowa Floor Covering, get tough core click together 4.5 millimeter waterproof vinyl flooring for $269 per foot when you install it yourself. That's a much better value than you'll find at any of the big box stores. Looking for other types of flooring? They can help with that too. Between their exceptional product knowledge and commitment to customer service, the guys at Iowa Floor Covering will provide everything you need to complete your DIY flooring project. So what are you waiting for? Skip the box stores now and visit iowafloorcovering.com slash DIY. That's iowafloorcovering.com slash DIY. Promotional pricing only available with self-installation. All kinds of flooring needs. Uh, Iowa Floor Covering can help you and your family out with your needs. Uh, even uh, tile showers, uh, they can uh, certainly help you out. So, again, iowafloorcovering.com. We appreciate Tyler Ryan and the Hawkeye fans down there in uh, in Bondurant. Um, Don, before we get to a, a couple more comments, and then we've got, again, Kyle, and we've got somebody on our phone line. Can I run through a list of names that were brought up this afternoon when we were talking about potential replacements for Brian? Sure. And I'm just going to read you these names because these were names, and I may have missed some. And if I did, somebody can throw them up in the chat. These are not names I'm endorsing. I'm simply bringing up names that people brought up. All right? Don't tell me one of them is Bobby Stoops. <laughs> no, but I did laugh at I said that somebody's going to probably say that, and I'm going to have to make fun of them. Uh, Ryan Grubb is obviously the first one. They're not getting Ryan Grubb from Washington. I know he's an Iowa guy. 
he's going to get a head coaching job somewhere. Why would he come to Iowa to be the OC? Under um, it's worth a phone call, and maybe he would be the heir apparent to Kirk Ferentz to be the coordinator. That'd be a good reason. Okay. All right. Worth a phone call. Hey, I'm all for phone calls, Don. Uh, John Budmeyer is obviously one that people are going to bring up. I'm not saying he should get the job or he shouldn't get the job. I'm just saying he is going to get brought up, and he's going to be on the list of potential candidates. I think that's well, fair. Are we going to put him on the list because of – Performance in Colorado State, is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm just I'm gonna put him on the list because I know he's got a relation strong relationship with two of Iowa's current quarterbacks. He's got uh ties, he's married to a Hartlieb. He's got strong ties to Iowa. He's been working with Iowa for the last two years. That's why I'm putting him on the list. And he's a former quarterback. So he, I, I would anticipate he understands a passing game a lot better than Brian Ference ever has. That would be my Yes. That's a that's a fair a fair rationale to have him on the list. Absolutely. Chip Long, our good friend Will over with uh, Notre Dame, and uh, he contributes over to the Mark Rogers Show quite a bit. Uh, he brings up Chip Long from Louisville. Don, what do you know about Chip Long? Well, is Chip Long uh, is he um, a lot better now because of, because of um, the play caller at Louisville? Is that why he's better all of a sudden? So you knew he was at Louisville. My point is, who is the play caller at Louisville? I suspect it's a guy, a guy named Joe. Don, I didn't know who Chip Long was. Maybe that's because I'm not a, junk, a college football junkie or a former coach like you. Well, I don't know much about Chip Long at all. I just simply know, in my mind, the play caller at Louisville is a guy named Jeff, Jeff Brom. I know. But I'm just surprised you knew he was at Louisville. That's what I'm saying. I, <laughs> anyways, uh, so he was uh, Chip Long, in case people don't realize this. Uh, was at one time a tight ends coach for Illinois back in 2010-2011. Uh, then he was tight ends coach in the Pac-12 at Arizona State. He was OC at Memphis in 16, OC from <coughs> from 17 to 19, OC at Tulane in 21, and then he was at Georgia Tech for one year, and now he's at Louisville as an analyst. I'm just bringing up the name, Don. I'm just don't okay. Don't no. shoot the messenger, all right? Gotcha. <laughs> uh, Nate Shieldhouse. Nate Shieldhouse, Don. I don't know what Iowa State's paying uh, Nate to be at Iowa State, but his dad played at Iowa. He played. And he was a guy by the name of Nate Creer. Yeah, and he was he was a very good football player. Played for uh, you. I do have um, a measure of respect for Nate Shieldhouse. I think he is an outstanding coach. Played at Illinois, as you know. Uh, and let's give let's give um, not just Nate, but also Matt Campbell, and also. Other coaches on that staff, uh, John Haycock comes to mind, outstanding defensive coordinator. Let's give them credit. When they started the season one and two, I bet there were a lot of people in names that wondered how this was all going to play out. And I think it, it's been an exceptional job on their part to get them to this point in the season that they're at right now. I mean, a bowl game is almost a given at this point. The question is, can they actually find a way to, to get into a championship game? Um, there's a chance of it. They got a lot of work to do, but it's possible. But Don, can you comment on the idea of Nate Shieldhouse at Iowa? Well, uh, one negative is a lot of our fans would not want to hire a coach from Iowa State. I think there's some truth to that. Give me a break. I'm hey, serious. If Dan McCarney, if if listen, if if Barry Alvarez can go to Wisconsin and and Dan McCarney can go to Iowa State, I'd be happy to welcome Nate Shieldhouse to Iowa. Yeah, 
I'm impressed with what I know about Ned Shellhouse. I think he's a, a fine young coach. I don't see Kirk Ferentz poaching Nate Shieldhouse from Iowa State. <laughs> I don't see that happening as much as some people would, would like that for that to happen. Um, number five, Paul Christ. Um, I have a lot of respect for Paul. I know he's an outstanding person. I knew his dad years ago. His dad was a coach himself. And, um, Probably, truthfully, one of the negatives, it's not really a fair assessment, but a lot of people would say, no, he's he didn't, he's not sexy enough. You know, he's too old. He's, um, he's trending downward because of the way things finished up for him at Wisconsin. Uh, but Paul Chris did have a lot to do with the success of Wisconsin. There's no doubt about that. I'm talking about as a coordinator. Uh, and then, of course, as, his record as a head coach was overall impressive, too. All right, uh, let's go to number six on the list, uh, a guy named Don Patterson. Oh, I'm sorry, that was a clerical error. Let me skip. Let's go to number seven, Don. Let's skip to number seven. Randy Hedberg. Randy Hedberg. Now, hold on a second before you comment. <laughs> you know me, I know a lot about Randy. You know a lot about Randy. Randy was – we we. this has been noted on good authority on this very show. Randy was absolutely interested. He was interested. I can tell you that with 100% certainty. He was interested in the Iowa – quarterback coach job when it was open here like a year and a half ago Iowa told him no they were not interested in even interviewing him now he has been the passing game coordinator at North Dakota State for a number of years is he qualified to jump to an offensive coordinator spot in the Big Ten I don't know I do know this that Iowa has a running backs coach that I'm fairly confident in so could you potentially elevate uh, Liddell Betts to run game coordinator and make a guy like Randy Hedberg your quarterback's coach and passing game coordinator. Is that something that would be on the table? You could. And I don't know that Randy would have an interest in that. I suspect he might. Uh, let's face it, Randy's, for those that don't know, Randy's uh, probably not going to coach that many more years, maybe five more years, I would think, at the most. Uh, and maybe one thing we know for sure, North Dakota State cannot pay like Iowa can pay. So he would have a chance to to uh, maybe triple or quadruple his income for a year or for several years, I should say. And that might be enough motivation for him to to um, accept a title less than offensive coordinator. Let's face it, if he's the passing game coordinator, could that work? I do think that ultimately you need one play caller, not two. Uh, but let's face it, uh, the play caller could get a lot of input from a running game coordinator within the course of the game and simply be the final decision maker in terms of run versus pass. So it can, it can work that way. Some some people do work it that way. Uh, I'll give you an example. When, when I was uh, um, the uh, quarterback receiver coach, as soon as Bill Snyder left, Paul Jackson was the run game at Iowa. I was the passing game coordinator at Iowa. Carl was 10 years my senior. It didn't bother me at all that he had the title of offensive coordinator because I knew Carl's going to dictate the runs and I'm going to dictate the pass. And and that's the way Coach Fry wanted it. And, it. and it didn't bother me that someone else had the title because when Carl left for the 49ers, I then became the coordinator too. Uh, I should say had the title. I was already coordinating pass anyway. 
so I don't think Randy Hedberg is that preoccupied with titles. He'd probably be more than okay with being considered as the passing game coordinator, especially if we gave him, I don't know, maybe a half a million good reasons to, to accept that title. I think it's funny when people like, uh, let's see here, M. Finn in the chat. Hedberg is almost 70. Look, uh, he's 68 years old. And how many years does Kirk have left? All right. If, if, Not very many. If Randy's got three or four years and he can make, you know, a few million dollars while he's here, why not? Look, hey, would we, would we begrudge Kirk and, and Randy if this program was in a much better place three or four years from now when they both retired? That wouldn't bother me at all if they could put us in a better place. Let's not hire with a view to age at this point in Kirk Ferentz's tenure. Let's hire the best qualified person. Frankly, Don, the case could have been made a way that maybe the Bryan situation could have been remedied is if they were willing, and I'm talking about Iowa in general, was willing to bring on Randy a year and a half ago. They could have made him the passing game coordinator then and made Brian the run game coordinator. That Maybe we wouldn't be in this situation now, frankly. Well, for those that don't know, uh, North Dakota State has had three quarter, maybe right now, three quarterbacks in the NFL. All that came from North Dakota State, none of which were highly recruited. Who were they all coached by? The same Randy Hedberg. Yeah. I don't give a crap what a guy's age is right now. All right. So that's where I stand on this. Uh, number eight, Andy Ludwig, Utah, former offensive coordinator at Wisconsin. And um, I, his name was brought up, I believe, in the latter half after Tom Caker uh, joined the show. I don't, I don't think he brought. I don't think Tom brought up uh, Ludwig. Maybe he did, but uh, he was at Wisconsin, I believe. I want to say back in like the 2018. Maybe I'm mixing them up with someone else, but um, I was thinking he was at Wisconsin back. Um, Maybe was he coordinator or, or quarterbacks coach at Wisconsin? So we wrote these down as we were going, or I wrote these down as we were going, but he is kind of a, an interesting name. And I don't know how old, let me see how old, uh, since we're concerned with age, let's just see how old. Do you know anything about Andy Ludwig, Don? Uh, I'm just vaguely familiar with the name. I do not. Uh, 59 years old. He's 59 years old, and I've got his uh, – resume here so he was at wisconsin as the oc from yep, 13 uh, to 14 then he went to vanderbilt uh, until 17 excuse me until 18 and now he's the oc he's been the oc at utah since 2019 he, well, there's, a, there's a guy if you look at the resume you're thinking okay that might be a guy we could steal from a power five program because he's going granted utah's going to have a home in the big 12 but yeah, here's one more reason to consider him. There are four Pac-12 teams that are going to be playing in the Big Ten next year. He knows about those teams already. Correct, and, and like I said, is it fair to say that the Big 12 is likely to place third fiddle to the SEC and the Big Ten in the coming years? So you could say that's a step up. I don't know what he's getting paid right now at uh, Utah, but I'm guessing Iowa could compete. And for those that want to be critical of the way Utah is playing right now, I know this for a fact. They had their they had a really, really good quarterback that was injured in the early season. They've been doing it with the backup quarterback and doing okay. You know, they're competing well in the in the Pac twelve, even if their offense is not in the hands of the starter, but in the hands of a backup. The next one's a kind of funny one, Don, because I brought his name up 
like two years ago when we were talking about potential replacements for Ken O'Keefe. Let's get Bill Lynch back out of retirement. I think <laughs> I think Bill talk about old. How old is Bill Lynch now? Is that Bill Lynch Senior or Junior? I think his son was Billy Billy Lynch also. Where's Bill uh, Lynch Junior? Bill Lynch used to coach at Indiana, right? That's the one you're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and keep in mind and the I reason. Both stayed off. Played also, right? He's a former quarterback, played quarterback at Butler, um, was the head coach at Indiana uh, back 2007-2010, finished his career at DePauw University, um, and retired in 2019. Now, he is no young spring chicken either. He's 69. But like I said, I'm not looking at this age. So, too old, just throw him out the window. (laughs) My gosh, he's he's only three years younger than I am. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say. Um, and then finally, la- last one is probably a, a reasonable thought, um, and that's Tim Polasek from Wyoming. Of course, he was the OC at North Dakota State, got hired on to Iowa as the O-line coach. I had to do some research because well, Wyoming had some problems. Was it last offseason or the offseason before? Of course, their head coach, Craig Bowl, But Tim right. is still the offensive coordinator there. And obviously had a lot of success at North Dakota State. Now, was that because of him or just that program and and – the staff around him, of course, what they were able to do with guys like Randy Hedberg has been impressive. But your thoughts on Tim Polasek possibly making a return? Yeah, I just don't know that much about – I mean, of course, I know him. Um, I would think there would be better choices on your list, frankly. Um, that's just my opinion. So, all right, give me a, give me a name, Don, that uh, I didn't list in those 10 – those 10 names, a couple of those were kind of just fun names I wanted to toss out to you, like, uh, oh, I don't know. You know, this would be a good exercise. I would recommend this. If you if you look at the national stats, look through the teams that are, maybe to be a little more specific, look for the teams that are top 20 in total offense, top 20 in scoring offense, top 20 in rush offense, top 20 in pass offense, because you're looking for balance run and pass, right? Uh, and then when you maybe let's say you come up with five teams that have top 20 or top 25 status in all those categories, four of those teams aren't going to surprise you at all. Maybe there's one team that surprises you that they're in there. I'll give you an example. For what I know, Tulane is a really explosive team right now, or has been. I'm not sure how they've done that. Uh, obviously, you consider their schedule. But here's my point. There are some – some coaches that are doing a great job and you simply don't know about it because maybe maybe they're not playing in a high-profile league. Uh, but it's at least worth investigating sometimes. I'll give you a prime example. Years and years ago, a wise old coach by the name of Bob Elliott hired a guy that was coaching at North Texas that had had some success at SMU. But when Hayden Fry was hired at Iowa – uh, that really wasn't national news because he was tolling in anonymity at North Texas. You know, he he wasn't on the front pages of the, all the sports pages. But Bob Elliott knew this is a guy that gets out of his talent. This is a guy that can take his players and beat your players, and he can take your players and beat his players. That's the kind of coach you want, a guy that can win regardless of which side of the field he's standing uh, the same thing would apply to an offensive coordinator. Let's find a guy that can that seems to have a habit of pulling a large 
rabbit out of a small hat. You know, that's the guy you want to find, a guy that's somehow producing better than, it defies logic how well he's producing at the school that he's at. And he might not be at one of the perennial top 25s. He might be at a team that's, you know, is fighting to become a top 25 program, but that's clearly making progress. They're out there. There's a few of them. You got to do some research to find them because maybe we don't know anything at all about them right now and we simply haven't looked hard enough yet. M. Finn brings up a great point. Let's just call Bill Snyder. Uh, I mean, he's only 84, <laughs> Don. Let's do he's it. Only, Let's, he's only 84. 84. <laughs> Let's bring he's Bill still, He's still a really sharp 84, I promise you that. Amen. Hey, we called. We, is Carl Jackson available? Uh, Carl's only 73, I think. So, wait a minute. What am I thinking? That's not right. Uh, he's 83, I think. He and Bill are both 10 or 11 years older than I am. So, Well, then they both be uh, at the top of my list, Don. Um, real quick, I was just going to say, uh, somebody in the chat brought up Bodie Reader. What do you know about Bodie Reader? It's funny you mentioned that because I worked a game where Bodie Reader was coaching, and it was last Saturday. And now I'm trying to think, was he uh, – I know he's one of the coordinators last Saturday, but now I'm trying to think of which one. Yeah, he's the easy OC and quarterbacks coach. Where, though, at Illinois State or at UNI? At UNI. At UNI. Uh, you know, UNI's got a good offense. They do. They do a nice job. Um, you know, they – he's a guy to consider. I just don't know that much about his background. Um, I don't know. Let me just read you uh, some, of his, uh, his, some of his background. So he joined the Panthers in spring of 2022, was on the Auburn staff as a quality control guy, um, and had some offensive coordinator duties um, ahead of the 2022 season, then got the job at UNI, has coached in three bowl games, four FCS playoff games, has been a part of one conference championship. Uh, of course, uh, during the 2022 campaign, Reader helped quarterback coach the O'Day into a first-team All-Missouri Valley football conference passer. They led the conference in pass efficiency, pass touchdowns, passing yards, etc., Reader has coached in stints at Utah State, North Texas, Eastern Washington, Oklahoma State, Wisconsin, Stout, and Eastern Illinois. Um, but never a coordinator until he arrived at UNI, I guess? Uh, according to what I'm seeing, he was coordinator at North Texas in 2019. He was a coordinator at Eastern uh, Washington from 17 to 18. How old? Say it again. How old is he? I don't know. That's that's M. Finn's job to find the age of people. Well, here's, here's my question. Some players are not sexy enough because they're too old. Others, in my mind, are not sexy enough because they're too young. Uh, here's the reality. you got to sell recruits on the program, too. So that offensive coordinator, uh, you know, he better, he better need to shave twice a day because those 18-year-olds are looking at him and thinking, how's this guy going to allow our offense to become great? You know, he – he looks to me like he doesn't know enough football yet. Maybe Based on this picture of Bodie Reader, it appears that uh, he is at least old enough to where he's lost some hair. Um, and I'm not ripping him for that, but I'm just saying this is Bodie Reader. I'm guessing he's not in his 20s is what I'm saying. He at least doesn't look like a spring chicken. That's good. <laughs> oh my goodness! I hope this is a Texas term, a spring chicken. Oh, I, I've heard it. Believe me, I've heard it. Um, okay. So, uh, 
let, let me see here. So a couple more things here. Let me find. Um, Harpo wants to know if you think I would be in this position. It, it, would this still happen with Brian if that call hadn't happened and Iowa was seven and one right now? One word answer: No. I don't think it would happen right now. If we had squeaked by, squeaked by Minnesota, we'd be carrying on exactly the same. I do believe. Also, one more bone to pick with MFIN. He says the offense was bad under Ken O'Keefe. It was bad under Greg Davis. Nothing leads me to believe it will be better under anyone else. That's a very generic, uh, very thin comment that doesn't cover the extensity and, and really um, the drastic drop-off we've seen over the last three years. There were bad offenses under Ken O'Keefe and under Greg Davis, but overall, we've never seen anything like the offenses of the past three years. That's a fact. You know, I'll say this. If Kirk could find the right guy, I'm talking about a guy that was a proven offensive coordinator. Uh, and you mentioned the guy that's at Washington. Uh, he's proven, right? He's he's destined to be a head coach. The example I gave, wouldn't he be a, a little bit intrigued to come to Iowa and, and not be guaranteed to replace Kirk, but have the opportunity to make a name for himself in the next few years? And logically then – he'd have to be seriously considered to replace Kirk at that point. That's why Kirk would hire him in the first place, is so that Kirk would have someone on offense that he could have complete confidence in and could focus just on being the best possible head coach. Um, you know, that's what that's what the fans are looking for, is somebody that could, could game plan to the point where maybe Kirk wouldn't have to be involved night and day and would have time to do other things like recruit uh, even more effectively than we already are. And then, of course, uh, be supportive to the other units as well. Kicking game, defense too. Uh, so who doesn't want to hire a guy uh, that might be able to give us that kind of production on offense? Uh, Bobby says, how about Ben Arbuckle from Washington State? Now, Washington State runs an air raid, don't they, Don? Uh, you know, I think so, yeah. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with tempo offense, you know. Uh, <laughs> Northern Iowa ran some tempo offense just the other day. But uh, just, I don't know if State ran more, as I recall. But anyway, go ahead. This has to, it has to fit in with the Iowa system. Kirk is not going to bring in a guy who he's is, not going to be. No, he's not going to be comfortable doing that. <laughs> that's like that's like you've been you've been driving um, a Nissan three seventy ten years, and somebody wants to sell you about, on driving a Studebaker. I don't think so. I think Jason, I'll stay with the Z. Jason in the chat says, uh, Freddie Kitchens, North Carolina run game coordinator, tight ends coach. I don't want to hear about just a run game coordinator. I want to hear about a proven offensive coordinator. So Randy Hedberg would be off the list, Don, because he's a pass game coordinator. Okay, well, let me qualify that. A guy that a guy that uh, is more than capable of having that title. A guy that knows enough about football to deserve that title. Let's be honest. You can't. Is it fair to say Iowa would probably not be comfortable bringing in a run game coordinator from somewhere else and hiring a passing game coordinator within? Now, maybe they do that with John Budmeyer, but if you're gonna if you're gonna do that with someone, you're probably elevating a guy like Liddell Betts and then bringing in a guy like Hedberg to, to coach the pass offense. It would be logical that that um, coaches and fans might think we need somebody. Uh, to have an expanded vision of a pass offense. Not that we want to turn into an air raid offense, but somebody that really understands 
all kinds of concepts and how to attack both man and zone coverage with great effect. And that would involve pushing the ball down the field too. All right, let's go to our phone line. Thank you for calling Hawkeye. Hang out here from the Hawkeye of the Storm. Who's on the line? This is John, gentlemen. Hey, John. Uh, Coach Patterson, can you talk a little bit about uh, the film guys, the managers, and the trainers, what they add to the football team? Well, they're all unsung heroes. Uh, believe me, this place would not operate, any program would not operate with great efficiency without great trainers, great managers, um, you know, great people in the weight room. You know, it's it's really a, um, a heavy involvement on all levels. Uh, and, of course, those guys, those managers are unsung heroes. Uh, they work long hours. They, they get very little location for their time. I don't know what their compensation is right now, frankly. Maybe it's different than it used to be. But the same could be said for equipment managers. Uh, trainers, I promise you, there, there are more injuries uh, that you never know about that are simply taken care of through um, uh, outstanding work in the training room. And I'm talking about a real commitment on the part of the player to be able to be there at all kinds of hours. The same thing could be said, of course, for those those uh, athletic trainers that know so much about how to nurse a guy back to health. And sometimes it is a race against time. And they hope to get him back for the next game. And sometimes they make that deadline. Sometimes they don't. But it's not because they don't know what to do, I can assure you. Uh, in so many ways, they have to be psychologists sometimes, too, because a, a young man is away from home and trying to get nursed back into good health. And maybe he feels a little bit like a forgotten soul and that he's not able to contribute on Saturday. And so often a, a trainer is the one that helps him to wrestle with maybe going from the from the spotlight into the into the shadows for a period of time simply because he's not healthy enough to be able to play. Uh, but all those people do a great job. They're all unsung heroes. An example that some people that are listening are familiar with, we had a couple of legendary trainers when we were there with Coach Fry, a guy named John Streif. If you know anything about Iowa athletics, everybody that's ever played a sport at, at Iowa knows about John Streif. Uh, he's really a living legend as it relates to athletic training. We also had a wonderful trainer by the name of Ed Crowley back in those days too. And and those players will tell you, without those trainers, it would not have been able to. We would not have been able to have the success we had. Uh, and the same can be said for strength coaches. The same can be said for those people in the weight room and for those student managers that do all the humdum stuff like getting the equipment on and off the field and being able to set up drills and being able to make practice run so much more smoothly. It, it's a cast of a lot of people, and they all have to be doing their job, and, and they understand, you know, my job, I'm just a small spoke in a big wheel, but my job is still important, and I've got to do my job to the best of my ability, just like that star quarterback or that star linebacker has to do too. Okay. I have a small request, Coach. Uh, okay. I would really appreciate it this basketball season if you'd call in and share some of your views with it. Uh, I enjoyed when you called in last season and spoke with Derek Close and Corey on it. That was Well, I don't claim to be an expert about basketball, you know that, but but I do I do enjoy watching the game and 
and especially trying to figure out the strategy of the game. I think that's always interesting. Um, you know, I remember there was uh, Indiana a couple of years ago. We were really, really good from three, and Indiana said, no, you're not going to shoot threes against us. So they extended their defense, and we were forced to put the ball on the floor and drive, and, and they made us play left-handed. It's kind of the equivalent of what we faced last week when we had to throw the ball because Minnesota dared us to be able to do so, you know, by taking away our running game. And that so there's, there's similar strategy, even though it's a different sport, the strategy can still be much the same. Indiana had a, a valid strategy to m make us put the ball on the floor and drive rather than give us perimeter shots because we were good perimeter shooters. Uh, and they beat us that, that game too. Right over here in Carver-Hawkeye, I remember that game very well. It was just a couple of years ago. And that's about all I know about basketball is simple stuff like that. But, but uh, maybe I could have a little bit of an intelligent opinion of a basketball game. I don't know. I'm certainly not in the same category as Gary Close. He's the expert, not me. Well, I enjoyed listening to you three, so I, I hope you'll call in a couple of times this season. So, Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, John. Always My there. pleasure. I will admit, Corey, I've done some analytics uh, for basketball, and it was interesting because I think it was pretty revealing all over again. Incidentally, talking about analytics, I just got through with Illinois State versus UNI. And how about this for some really strong analytics? I still remember what they were. Uh, Northern Iowa, seven games they'd played, the team that had the most rushing yardage had won all seven of them, seven for seven. So if you're Illinois State and you know that, now they didn't know it because I didn't divulge that to the teams. Of course, I didn't bring it up until the game started. But if Illinois State knew in, in – Northern Iowa, seven games, the team that had the most rushing yards won every time. It would have obviously been a goal of theirs to outrush, outrush Northern Iowa. They didn't do that, incidentally. Uh, that's one reason Northern Iowa won the game. On the other side of the ball, in Illinois State, seven games, uh, in all seven games, they had the edge on critical down conversions. So if Northern Iowa knew that about Illinois State, one of their goals would have obviously been critical down conversions. Way. They did have an edge on critical downs. Again, that's another reason they won a game. It was a close game, but in both cases, you and I had the edge. One last parameter in the game. How about this one, Corey? Explosive plays. If either team won on explosive plays, their record was 11 wins and no losses. There were three ties in those 14 games. But in all 11 games, the team that with the most explosive plays won the game. It wasn't always you and I. It wasn't always Illinois State. Maybe it was the opponent. They were both four and three going in the game. The point was that had 100% reliability in picking the winner. And here's a shocker for you. Guess who had more explosive plays? The team that won the game again. You and I had an edge on all three against Illinois State. So um, it did apply to, to men's basketball to a large degree. I don't know that I'm going to do that for basketball again. It's a lot of work. We'll see if they want me to uh, do some research for them. I'll be happy to do it probably because I'll be looking for something to do to stay warm in the winter months, I guess. Um, Don, just real quick, D. Rollison with the Super Chat says, please no Bud Ball. Chris is a two-time Big Ten Coach of the Year. I think Paul Chris should be on the list, Don. I, I, I agree with that. I know people don't think that's a sexy pick, but uh, I do think he should be on the list. 
Well, Paul Chris knows a lot about football. I promise you, he knows a lot about this league. Uh, I would I would be willing to bet my paycheck if I was still earning one uh, that Kirk Ferentz has a lot of respect for Paul Christ. I'd be willing to bet that's true. And uh, you mentioned some of the best offenses in the country, just perusing through total offensive rankings in the FBS. Three of the top 10 offenses as far as offense production, and, and granted some of this production is against lower-tier talent. We understand that. Uh, but it's also being done with lower-tier talent. But three of those 10 teams, Don, in the top 10 nationally are group of five schools. Do you want to take a guess at who those top three pro? I would almost guarantee you will not be able to tell me those three programs, Don, that are in the top 10 in total offense that are a group of five schools. Well, like a school like, like is Coastal Carolina now FBS or not? They are. They are not on the list. They're 26th. In the, 26. In the I'll go with Tulane then. Tulane is not either. Tulane is – where's Tulane? They're a ways down the list. They're not anywhere close. Okay, maybe they lost a lot of their firepower from last year. I thought last year they were pretty high, but I could be wrong. They were. Yeah, beat USC in the bowl game. Uh, no, Liberty's number eight. Liberty right now is averaging 488 yards per game. North Texas, your old mean green. Are number nine at 485.2 yards per game. And how about this? Another Texas school, the Bobcats of Texas State at uh, 483. Now, I would be curious if they had some balance with their numbers. Uh, I think that's always a good sign. Let's face it, you don't want to just hire an OC that um, has great success in the passing game and, and, and not so much in the run game. You know, I think the ideal would be. Let's find a, an offense that's got good balance because I think that does make you harder to defend if you have good balance running pass. Liberty is second in the country in yards per rush, or excuse me, yards per game on the ground, 280.6 yards per game, only trailing or trailing only Air Force. So that would tell me, and I'm looking at uh, passing offense here, that would indicate to me that they're probably not real high in passing offense. Being in yeah. that they're not real balanced. Uh, now, Texas State is 28th in the country in pass offense, and in rush offense, Texas State is, uh, they got to be somewhere close, 18. So they're very balanced. Um, yeah. that, that'd be a program to look at, right? Is that kind of what you're saying? I know this yeah, and, and at least and at least it's worth a look. I'll say that. You know, you got to, Let's face it, you know, I know for a fact Bob Bennett would not have hired Aiden Fry. You know why he hired Aiden? You probably heard the story. SMU played at Michigan when Bump was coaching at Michigan. Here's a shocker. Michigan had trouble defending against SMU. And years later, Bump thought back, you know what? I was always impressed with Aiden Fry because he gave us fits. Uh, and one comment I heard recently here Someone had said this. I forget who it was, but someone had run into uh, Shemmy Schembechler. That's Bo's son. Um, I don't know who it was. Uh, this guy was a, actually a roommate. I can't remember who it was, but somebody was a roommate with Shemmy Schembechler at Ohio, in Miami of Ohio, I believe. He went to Miami. And Bo was now But this person had us to talk to Bo his son, when Bo's son was a college student, and Bo had just retired, and Bo made this comment about Iowa. He said, I hated Iowa when Hayden Fry was at Iowa. 
but I have great respect for Iowa because I never did figure out how to defend them, how to defend their offense. That's what you want. You want to hire a guy like that. You know, if it, if it really presents a lot of problems for some really outstanding defensive coordinators, that's a guy you better take a look at. I don't care if he is coaching at North Texas. Uh, you know, if North Texas has success, let's face it, uh, maybe North Texas in the Sun Belt, right, the Sun Belt Conference, maybe if they have success against a Big 12 opponent, maybe that's on their schedule or some other FCS opponent, that's another reason to take a look at, at that particular coordinator. Let's take a look at somebody that's getting a lot of mileage out of out of a, a roster that's not just overloaded with talent. You want to go to the young guy, Don. Texas State's offensive coordinator is 28 years old. 28 yeah. years old now. Hold on a second. Don't be – listen, don't become this ageist. All right? He hadn't even, even paid for his first car yet. Just listen to this. He was a student assistant at UTEP in 2016. Listen to this ladder up the – all right? Student assistant – Kirk's not hiring. Okay. Okay. Student okay. assistant at UTEP at, for the minors in 16. Then he was an offensive coordinator at Lehman High School. Is that my saying that right? Lehman High School in Texas? You don't know. I don't even know where Lehman High School is. 2018, he became a GA at Incarnate Word. Okay. 2019 to 2021, he was quarterback's coach at, at Incarnate Word. 2022, he was quarterback's coach and offensive coordinator in Incarnate Word. Keep in mind, during his tenure as the QB's coach, he was the guy who coached Cam Ward, who ended up right. going to Washington State. You know where I'm going with I this. I was aware that Incarnate Ward had a really good quarterback. Yes, they did. Dual threat guy. And now he is the he was hired last December as the OC at Texas State. And he's and so now they're lighting it up, lighting it up at Texas State. <laughs> 20. So we go from either Bill Lynch, who's like 70, to Mark Leftwich, who's 28 years old. Um, but anyways, um, I digress. Let's go to our next caller. We've got Kyle and we've got the B on hold. Let's go to Kyle. Welcome back, Kyle. How are we doing tonight, guys? Kyle, how are you? You, you think it's go golf season? Is that what I see? Uh, well, as a matter of fact, Coach, I played uh, I played this Saturday. I've got one more round in for the season. It was about 40 degrees, but I, I made my way to Iowa City and played Finkbine. Kyle, you're a better man than I am. There's a thing called wind chill, and I don't want to be on a golf course when we have wind chill. I, uh, I I don't know. I don't know if it makes me a better man. I think it makes me an addicted man. Well, you probably hit it a lot further than I do, so this cold air doesn't bother you so much. Well, we, we got out and we did some walking, so the, the walking kept us as warm as we could stay. Now, don't tell me. I know all about Figbine. Don't tell me you played all day and didn't three-putt, because with those greens, you have to have putts in there. That's a good question. Did I three-putt? Um, I think I had... Two at uh, two bogeys on the day. No, I don't think I did. No, that's impressive. Didn't know because those I, I, greens. I'm sure you'll agree. Those greens. Now maybe they slowed down with the fall, with the weather, but those greens are treacherous in the summertime. They're they're fast. When we uh, when we got our stip meter out for the we hosted the U.S. Uh, or the um, sorry the Iowa Women's Amateur uh, Championship and they they got the greens rolling for that and I. I, if I remember, I could be wrong on this, but I remember them measuring it at about 12 and a half on the stimp, which is only a, only a hair behind Augusta National for the Masters. So yeah. it's a uh, it's a scary place. But it is. It's, it's a great design. I, I love I love getting back to play there. 
Kyle, can I real quick? Can do you mind if I put you back in the queue for a minute? Yeah, go for it. Because I, I'm gonna I'm take this last call from the B, and then I know you wanna. Are we supposed to be looking at this golf swing, and we're supposed to get Don's opinion on the golf swing? Is that what we're doing? We can if you want to. That's up to you. Uh, Kyle wants to get your opinion on a golf swing, Don. So let's we're gonna take Kyle. I don't out. know any more about golf than I know about basketball. Well, so what does that say? In your analytics and his golf expertise, we should be able to fix my game. Let's go to the B who uh, is on hold, and then we'll get a word from our sponsor. We'll go back to Kyle. The B, welcome. Hey, guys. How are you guys tonight? I'm good. How are you, sir? I'm good. Um, hey, I, I was going to ask you something I was thinking about earlier today. Since Beth swung the axe today, which I was very impressed with, um, two things come to mind. Is it possible for an AD, even though she specifically said in her press release that whoever Kirk hires is who Kirk hires, but is there stipulations that are written in possibly going forward that they have to approve of whoever he picks to make sure we don't fall into this repetitive situation again that we've had with OCs? Is, is that possible to even do, or have you ever heard of anything like that? My, my wife asked me about that earlier today and I was like, God, that's a good question. I'll ask them tonight. I've never, heard of, I've never heard it stipulated in someone's contract. Uh, I do know an experienced AD, if there's an opening, a key opening on staff, uh, the AD might say to the head coach, uh, Coach, I'd appreciate it. You know, I'm a former coach myself. Maybe he would say that. And I, I would appreciate um, open communication with you as to who this next coordinator should be. You know, a wise AD would at least lay the groundwork for some two-way communication involving the search. That's logical that an AD might do that. Do, do, you, uh, do you think, uh, being that Brian didn't step down from the rumors that were seen circulated, uh, which he's basically told then he's not going to come back, the timing of this, do you feel um, – I, I expected this at the end of the year, and I get why they're doing it now, but to me, if that's my son – and this happens right now versus the end of the year, this actually changes how I want to stay on here. I know he's got a lot of money on the table, but if this would have happened at the end of the year, I could see Kirk moving on with this and going, okay, I don't agree with it, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to do this again. But being that this happened right at this time, this seems like such a slap to him. And I don't mean it, it shouldn't have happened. It needed to happen. But the timing of it with him and how he takes things like this, do you, I, I kind of am, I don't know, I'm starting to believe now more that he may step away at the end of the year just because of this is an embarrassment. This is he tried to get his kid a, a, a job. He tried to get him established. Every dad would do something for his kids. We all know that. But this was a. a this was a pothole that I wouldn't have walked into. I wouldn't have hired my kid. This is just, this was bad news all around when it started, you know, years ago when he did this, this just wasn't a good look. And there was a danger to his legacy and tarnishing how he goes forward. And so, you know, just does that, the timing of it seem a little bit more of maybe a push than at the end of the year. And I, I think it helps with recruiting. I think it will help with, you know, giving some clarity that maybe there is a future here for some of these recruits to go. We're not going to be stuck here and into this sort of thing. But again, to the previous question, we've kind of seen this before. And so I don't really have a lot of expectations of what could change unless Kirk was to step away 
from his influence of this stranglehold he has over the offense because it is a stranglehold. And so just my thoughts, I don't know, maybe I'm way off on that, but it just seems like there is a possibility that because of the timing of this, he may just want to go, Hey, you know, the, the writings on the wall, uh, Beth gets swung, swung, swung the ax with an interim tag that tells you a lot. And, and to Kirk, I think that's a slight. I think that's disrespect. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he said in the if he said, "You can't do that. You're an interim AD." I could see him saying something like that. Well, first uh, of all, I just want real quick, not to interject, but I think it's likely based on what's out there. It's it sounds like there was pressure above Beth Getz. So oh no! Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to suggest. Do we know for sure who made the decision? Yeah, and I then think- entirely possible the university president ultimately made the decision, or maybe you could argue that a few key contributors um, united and and maybe effectively made the decision yeah. by threatening to take away their support. I don't know. It's hard to say. It's hard to say that one person made the decision. I don't. I don't know. We may never know. Right. Right. All right, fellas. Well, thanks. Let's get back to the golf swing stuff. I'll be watching that intently because I'm still golfing here in Idaho. So, yes, it is still happening. We are doing it. So I will watch intently. You guys have a good night. Real quick. Real quick I just yeah. want to throw something in there. I once I've only golfed one time in Idaho. I golfed a little course and I believe it was Post Falls, Idaho. I don't know where you're at. Uh, and we've talked about this before, but it was up in Post Falls or Coeur d'Alene area. But there was an island, beautiful island green. And I've never golfed Finkbine, just for the record. And I, I've been told there's a pretty nice island green at Finkbine. Right, Don? Yes. It's a really nice par three and a beautiful island green at this course out in Coeur d'Alene. I don't remember what it was called. but uh, Well, were you, at the, were you at the resort? The Coeur d'Alene Lake Resort has the, the, uh, the island uh, hole. So that's Might that's right there on, on Coeur d'Alene Lake. Yeah, that's still going. So it's we've had beautiful weather, no no real snow yet. And so it's crisp and cool, you know, good 40s, 50s. You get a little, as the coach would say, a little bit of that wind chill. But once you get going and, you know, you, you, you swing a few times like me and miss a thousand times, you get warmed up because, you know, you're like, I can beat this ball. And eventually it, it, it does work. So let, yes. me tell you, let me tell you this. Um, the the. Uh, Coeur d'Alene Lake, just that lake is just gorgeous. Talk about clear water. I miss going out there. It's been years since I've been out there, but uh, nothing like that lake. It's it's a good time right now too, Corey, with the with the weather the way it is and seeing the the steam come off off the lake in the in the morning and the dew and the mist. Good time to fish too. It's it's good fishing times. The cool the cool water they just come right up to the top. They don't sink down in the summer because in the summer you know it gets real super hot. They just go. They dive deep, but it's great. So, yep, still doing it, man. So I will watch intently. All right. Thank you, sir. He's talking my language, talking fishing and golfing and getting uh, I'm going to have to head somewhere else other than Iowa because here we are entering November and it is supposed to get back in the 50s. But for me, uh, I'm not an ice fisherman, Don. I'm certainly not a snow golfer. Uh, I don't go to a lot of I'm not, I've never been a simulator guy and there's some indoor golf places around town. I've never just never done it. Uh, maybe maybe someone can convince me. Other are you ever you ever done the indoor golf thing, Don? I have not. So, anyways, uh, before we uh, before we get Kyle back on here and we'll end the show on a high note, um, do want to give a special shout out to our sponsor, Ascent Nutrition. 
And I've talked about them at length. Oh, you can start your Ascent Spin to Win here with uh, their Ascent Nutrition Wheel. You can also start your Ascent today by checking out their awesome health products. And as you'll see as you peruse the website, so many different products for so many different needs. Um, and really, the products we've been highlighting over the last few months are their two new mushroom powders. They're Agaricon Mushroom. They're Lion's Mane Mushroom. Um, this episode is sponsored by their Agaricon Mushroom. And it's an uh, interesting backstory. It was researched by the Department of Defense's BioDefense BioShield Pro- Program in conjunction with the NIH and the NIAID. The military and government's research into this powder has showed how its rare compounds exerted strong bio- biological activity. And this uh, Agaricon can be used to support respiratory, lung health, immune system health, promote <laughs> healthy inflammatory response. You can read all about this awesome product. And all the benefits, including the ingredients, just everything you need to know before making the purchase. And then a deal when you order through uh, our website um, or through, I should say, our code, Hawkeyes. You can use the code Hawkeyes at goascentnutrition.com and make a purchase, whether it's the Agaricon mushroom or one of their other many products. Use the code Hawkeyes. Start your ascent today. And just as a reminder, you can mix those uh, mushroom powders into yogurts, smooth- smoothies, juices, cereals, etc., very easy to use and also safe for your pets. Again, that's goascentnutrition.com, and it is owned by a former Iowa graduate. All right, let's uh, let's finish it off with a little uh, little golf talk. Kyle's back with us. Kyle. All right. So how how are we going to do this? Uh, I can uh, let me let me share. So this was just for the record. This was Kyle's idea. I don't want to make. I do not want people to think that I'm trying to make this about me here, Don. Uh, <laughs> It's kind of a word that I've done some analytics for golf too. I I think we mentioned it last. Was it at the? Was it last year towards the end of the year? I think you joked about it. We didn't really talk about it, but I think you joked about it. Yeah, you want to hear? Do we have time, Corey? Yeah. Well, I happen to be uh, kind of frustrated with my golf game on Finkbine, and it happened to be coincide. I played Finkbine maybe on Wednesday or something. And then started the, it was either Augusta National or it was the U.S. Open. I can't remember. It was a major tournament. And as I watched, um, as I watched the golf there on Thursday, I started real. I was reflecting back on my own game, and I, I thought, you know what? I swear, I, I missed the putt below the hole, way too much, you know. And if I was reading a foot of break, it seemed like invariably I was finishing below the hole. So I made up my mind the next time I play Fingbine, if I read a two-foot break, I'm going to go ahead and consciously allow three feet, not two. And what I found is I no longer missed the ball on the low side so much. Uh, my putting was better. And right then it occurred to me, I'm going to chart every putt I can see on TV in all four rounds, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Now, of course, you're only, a, you're, only you're at the mercy of whatever the TV shows. But if I could determine every every missed putt, there are only three possibilities when you miss a putt. You either miss it low, you miss it on the low side, the high side, or you miss it short, and you really couldn't tell if it was going to be low or high. You simply left it short, right? We've all seen that. Here's what I found, Kyle, and, I, and Corey already knows this. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but basically even the best golfers in the world that are playing on the PGA Tour – they missed almost twice as many putts below the hole as above the hole. 
Interestingly enough, the guys that were the best putters more often missed barely below the hole or barely above the hole. And, of course, they were the best putters because a lot of them went in. And it's amazing how some how good some of these guys are from from 10 feet. They almost never miss. Uh, I'm really envious of that because I make some from 10 feet, but I don't make the same percentage as they do. And so what I found is, in general, uh, the average golfer for sure misses below the hole. And as you know, Kyle, if you miss on the high side, there's always a chance that the ball will continue toward the hole and fall in the side door, right, rather than the front door. It may fall into the hole from the side. We've never seen a putt fall uphill, though. We haven't seen that, have we? No. So once you missed it low, you've missed it. I will admit, now, if you're, if you're putting from 50 feet, let's imagine you're 50 feet and you come up short left. Okay, maybe that leaves you with a straight putt uphill, right? Because it was uphill to begin with. Uphill, let's say an uphill putt that's going to break left. If you finish the hole, maybe you're aligned so that it's an absolute straight putt. You know, it's a three-foot putt and you're not going to miss it because it's a straight putt uphill. So that's not a bad place to miss, of course. But I'm, we're talking about 50-foot putts. Who are we kidding? If it's a 20- or 30-foot putt, these pros are thinking they, they're playing to make the putt. Unless they're protected, of course, they're finding ways to make long putts. I'll admit, from 50 feet, maybe they're more than happy to two-putt and get on, get on with the next hole. Uh, but in general, I found that golfers do not allow enough break in their putts. And that even included, in my mind, included a lot of pros. That's what I found. And it was not just one tournament. It was I think I actually looked at a PGA, a U.S. Open, and a Augusta National. And I got very similar results in all three. That's all I got. We have a, we, we have a coach on the show that can talk analytics in about seven different sports, and that all made sense. <laughs> I would love to talk to him because – you know, and you know what's funny is um, me and uh, an old college teammate. Um, he's a he's a pro personal productivity coach, but he was really into the golf analytics when I played collegiate golf with him, and um, so he kind of got me into it, and I've been fascinated with it for the last few years. But we actually do golf coaching now, um, where we take people out on the golf course and we'll play nine holes with them, and we'll walk them through stuff like that, hole by hole, step by step, uh, as far as what club to hit off the tee, what club do you hit into the green? And then once you're around the greens, what do you do? Um, and we, one of the big things we always hammer home is that amateurs, if you're about a 10 handicap, which is a, a pretty solid amateur player, you're, you're three putting uh, just as much as you're two putting from 30 feet. And so we, we talk in strokes gained strokes gained is the analytical system that we use in golf. So basically the thought is if you put together, if you strategically thinking, if you put, together enough decisions that gain you a tenth of a shot here, a tenth of a shot there on average, then you add that up over 36 holes, 54 holes, 72 holes, uh, you'll, you'll do enough to win a golf tournament. So, uh, you know, we coach our players do not try to make a 30 footer because if you two putt, you've gained on average half a shot over the average 10 handicapper. So if you have four 30 footers in a round and you two putt them all, that's two shots that you've gained on your opponent and you add that up over all phases of the game and you might, you might end up beating somebody by five, six, seven shots that you're actually no better than skill wise, just because of some of the decisions that you've made throughout the, throughout the round to pick smart, smart targets and, and try to do things like lag up 30 footers rather than try to make them. Yeah. What's amazing to me, you're right. Strategy of golf, 
um, obviously the really the really accomplished players all have pretty good strategy, and they're logical with their thinking. But it's amazing how many people. Let's say the pin is on the right rear of the green. It's amazing how many people will short side themselves and they'll miss, but they're missing the short side, and now they're trying to get down to a hole that is virtually impossible to get to. And so you have no choice but to make the best pitch shot that you can, and yet it runs 12 feet past, and now all of a sudden, because you short-sided yourself, you're looking at a surefire bogey, if, if not a double, uh, simply because you missed you were only five feet away from where you really thought you wanted to hit the ball, but it was the wrong five feet. You know, so you figure out where to miss. Yeah. You know? There there are a lot of holes on Thinkbine where strategically speaking, it takes me on average lost shots to get in the hole. If I miss the green on the low side from twice the distance as it does putting from half the distance down the hill. That's how fast. Yeah. It's not like you're especially talking about the back nine on Thinkbine. 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. All, all the, that finishing stretch, those greens are all sloped back to front. Yeah. Those back pins are mean. Yeah. See, Corey, you're getting all this valuable input on all this intel on fake money. First time you play it, you're probably going to tear it up. I, I don't know how I haven't made it over there yet, Don. I just. Uh, well, I've, I've mentioned a time or two. It'd be nice if you'd do that. I've mentioned it a time or two as well. <laughs> I realize it's a time commitment. It is. Um, so, so here I'll, I'll share, I'll share these two, these three videos out, Don. And I want Don, you give me your, first of all, you've seen my golf swing before Don, just to make very clear, but this was actually on a very cold day here recently. And I sent some clips to, to Kyle and he had the idea of trying to I'm get gonna, these into the glasses on for this. Glasses on. Um, <laughs> and here, <laughs> so we'll start with, uh, what should we start with? Let's start with, uh, I believe this is, now, this is kind of unfair because Kyle actually knows what he's talking about, and I don't. All right, so we can see this, right? Is this too small? It's uh. You saying I have to critique this before Kyle does? Correct. <laughs> yes. Before Kyle does. Okay. So uh, let's get rid of the. Off of my notes. Nobody wants to sponsor this part of the show, so let me get rid of that part. Uh, okay. All right. So we we've got the swing here, right? And we'll we'll start with a. Normal play of the swing, Don, and just talk through what you're seeing here. We'll go back again. We'll just keep playing it until you have some input, Don. Well, I wish I could see the flat of the ball. You know, that's my. <laughs> that's sorry, my I I'm sorry, I don't have ball tracker on this thing, Don. You need okay. to download my shot tracer. Yeah, shot tracer. How do I get that? It's uh, I use um, I use a free app called Smooth Swing. Okay, so so Kyle, you walk through what you see here, uh, set up and and you walk through a little bit of this on the Instagram channel here earlier in the weekend. Yeah, so um, what I see at Corey's setup, and I pointed this out to Corey, was his back hand is kind of underneath the club, um, his palm is kind of gripping the club more so than his fingers. And one thing we would say in the golf world is you always want to grip the club in your fingers because you can you can get more speed out of it um, if, if the club's in your fingers versus in your palms. Like if you try and swing a baseball bat uh, or a golf club in your fingers, it's more robotic or in, in your palms, it's more robotic versus your fingers. You can get more speed in it. Um, and then the other the only other thing I would say is he's a little bit hunched over. Um, you know what? You know why that is, Kyle? <laughs> Tell you what is, because I need I need to be 
I need to get I need to actually get fitted for clubs. That's what I need to do. I actually need to get so you're too tall for these clubs, you're saying, huh? I mean that's my excuse, right? <laughs> he I, I would say it's a valid excuse. I think he, I think you need about a half an inch extension. Okay. You like how I hey uh you like how I'm able to slow this down into half speed? Isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? That's not StreamYard, that's Dropbox. So uh well, uh, I do like the fact that you were square to your target. It looks to me like your feet were lined up on your target. Okay, here's here's Don with some some breakdown. Square to the target, right? Well, actually, target's over here. But see, I was playing to the wide side of the. Uh, well, I was assuming you were um, you were worried about short siding yourself, so you're hitting to the middle of the green. Correct, exactly. <laughs> which I accomplished. Which I accomplished, Don. Okay. Okay, so let, that's that's uh, that's exhibit A. Uh, let's go ahead and go to uh, let's see exhibit B, I believe. Is this a a pitch shot maybe or a putt? This is actually a pitch. Let's uh, let's go to exhibit B. So this is a pitch from I don't know. I wish I had distance on this. I believe this was like ninety. I don't know. This is a. I, I want to say this is like ninety yards out, but I don't know. Okay. Um, all right. First up, don't, don't scoop the ball. Let the club do the work. Hit down Kyle, the ball. Kyle, I don't scoop the ball, Kyle. No. He does I not. Do not scoop the ball. Okay. Yeah. If anything, Corey digs the ball out of the ground. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Full speed first, and then we'll go. We'll slow down. So, full speed first, and we'll slow down. There's a practice swing for you, Don. Okay. And then we'll go, we'll go full speed, and then we'll go back and we'll do half speed. Like you hit a little bit fat. <laughs> uh, I don't think I hit it that fat. Okay. I think I think that was I think that was a very reasonable divot for the club he had in his hand. I think. Okay. I get overruled by the commissioner. <laughs> Watch this one more time. So, hey, remember, uh, ball first, right? There's some there's some ground here. There's some dirt, but ball first. See, let's stop it on the. So, yeah, it, was, it was definitely descending blow. I'll give you that. One thing, Kyle, you told me is that you think I'm a little steep when I come up with the club. Is that fair? Yeah. So it's it, it's an interesting thing because it's something a lot of professionals didn't used to do that they're doing now. Um, essentially, what you have to be careful of is when you get to the top of your swing there, you're paused in a perfect spot for me to talk about this. If your first move is a twist with your shoulders – hands are going to come outside and then you're going to chop down on the golf ball so when you're in that steep position you have to be really really careful that your first movement is to drop your hands down and then turn um and that avoids you kind of chopping down on the ball so when you make that steep takeaway it's not necessarily like a death sentence for the swing but you just have to be really careful that your hands drop first and then you turn because if your hands if your shoulder if your back shoulder turns out and then you drop then you're going to hit straight down on the ball and you're going to kind of make the chopping motion. Okay. So what's happening here? Are my hands dropping? You're, you were, you were good on these two. You were good on these two swings. I thought, I thought your hands dropped relatively quickly first, and then you turned out for the most part. It's, it's that back shoulder that I'm looking at. I don't want your back shoulder to come out in front of your chin before the club gets towards the ball. Gotcha. Okay. Does that so make sense, Ron? Back shoulder stays back really, really well there. You got anything done? 
no, I was just curious where the ball landed. Are you <laughs> on the green? Oh, yeah, I'm on the green. Okay. I'm on well, the green. I shouldn't assume that because it's 90 yards, and I'm not always on the green after 90 yards. See, it's hard. To, you're right. It's hard to see without uh, – it's hard to see where the ball goes at all, especially it's an overcast day. Um, yeah. I, I believe I, I I think I was on the green after this shot. So, anyways. Well, this much I have figured out. Uh, Kyle is a student of golf, much more so than I'm a student of football, even. So I have no doubt if Kyle would work for me, work with me for a couple of weeks, my handicap would back, be back into single digits, no problem, I'm sure. You you know we, <laughs> you know you know what we should do is we should, we need to organize this sometime. Um, in the summertime and get some kind of competition going for the channel for between you two. Even if it just goes up on social media just for the fun of it. <laughs> Corey's going to owe me a bunch of strokes. He's going to have to give me a lot of strokes. <laughs> it, well, here's what we'll do. We'll we'll do Corey against Don. Corey, you can give Don three shots on nine holes and I'll caddy for Don. Okay. <laughs> I'll take that. Uh, there's my secret weapon. <laughs> All right. So, so Jason in the chat says... Um, he says, I would say a little more upright in the setup. Grip is underneath. Definitely stand closer. Club face is closed. Pull the chain down. So you're going to have to interpret, Mikhail. You're going to have to interpret all this. Yeah, so pull the chain down is a um, – it's a it's something that Seve Ballesteros – I don't know if you're familiar with Seve. Coach Don, yeah, he sure. talked sure. about that a lot. Um, he was a great a great teacher of the golf swing, a great uh, – well, he was a great player first, but he was, he was a wonderful – he was wonderful at speaking out what he was doing. And he then passed that down to Sergio Garcia, who talked about who he talks about it a lot too. But pulling the chain down is that motion of kind of starting your backswing by pulling down on a chain and then turning. That's that's that pull and then turn that he's referencing. David says, I came for football discussion, turned into golf lessons for Corey. Absolutely. And Lomansky, appreciate the super chat. Lomansky. <laughs> every time Don every time Don talks analytics to his wife, he should buy her flowers. The, uh, I don't know if I can afford them. The more, the more, the more notable comment from Lemansky that I'm seeing is uh, Lemansky says Corey stiff approach shot of whiskey would do wonders. I get that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Lemansky's not uh, pulling any punches there. So uh, let's go to let's go to my drive because um, I mean I've made the comment, Kyle. I, I'm much more confident in my irons, my even my short game, I and mean, then my putting has a lot of room for growth. But uh, I'm much more comfortable with my irons than I'm with my driver. One of my big problems is I broke my driver uh, several years ago that I had invested some money in. And it kind of, I feel like it kind of sent me into a funk. And I've been playing with a below average driver in general. Um, and I need to upgrade all my clubs. But anyways, um, we can take a look at this and you can tell me. Uh, I can kind of uh, illustrate... Uh, how I, I how I feel like I drive the ball and where I feel like I'm at, and then Don, you can Don, you're going to have an opportunity to really be critical on this one because. <laughs> well, can I can I point out real quick before we do this that we had a very generous donor that uh, that covered your pizza for tonight, Corey. So maybe we can we can start an initiative of get Corey a new driver. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just bring a basket onto the show and with a little sign, and we can just do that. <laughs> Corey, I'm curious how many listeners that we lost here recently with our golf discussion. We're still we're still 200 plus, Don, and it's after midnight. It's good to know that they like football and golf. All right, let, let's uh, let's hide Lemansky's comment. Let's make this big screen. 
Um, okay, we'll, we'll make a big screen first. All right, we can see that, right? Everybody can see that. So, um, you're going to see a practice swing and you're going to see a real swing, Don. Again, this is my worst part of my golf game. So, I know I've got lots of room for growth here. Not afraid to say that. All right, full speed, right? Full speed. Now we go back here and let me just let me walk through what I believe are some of the issues at hand here, Don. And then Kyle will give his input and you can give yours. So first of all, and and Kyle brought this up, you obviously want that that incline. I don't know, you know, I'm going to speak in language that's probably not official golf talk, Kyle, but you want to be able to have that that right shoulder uh, for me as a as a as a righty, you want to have the right shoulder, you know, uh below the left shoulder, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, you know, you're not getting loft. With your, you're not getting loft with your driver, Don. So uh, you, you have to you have to create loft with your stance, and of course, your weight has to end up primarily on your back foot with the driver, right? Is that fair, Kyle? Yeah, yeah. You're trying to get your weight on your back foot so that you can launch the driver and also push off of the back foot for more power. So that's interesting. And you, you brought up too that you thought I'm a little bit that you think the ball needs to be a little bit further up in the stance on this. So ball, yeah. I would say, is lined up inside of that front foot. You think it should be closer to the middle of the front foot? Uh to me, it looks like it's slightly back of the inside of the front heel, but it's it's not necessarily where it is. It's relative to where I've seen you launch it. If you're launch if you're still launching it low from the inside of the front foot then it's not it's not bad to tee it up a little bit higher and put it even a little bit further forward. As long as it doesn't get past the middle of the front foot, I'd say it's fine. Okay. Well, that's good information to know because you always hear, Don, that, uh, you know, that ball needs to be lined up at the front foot. Well, is that, you know, left side of the front foot, right side, back heel, whatever. Um, Generally, so, inside of the front foot is what we teach. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, there's probably a little room there. And and definitely with my issues with, with – uh, getting that ball up on, on my drives. That's probably something to, to keep in mind. So um, as I come back here, first of all, there is a decent amount of, uh, I mean, my, my right shoulder is definitely below the left shoulder, right, Kyle? It is. Yeah, definitely. Below. That seems like more tilt than the average golfer. Would that be true, Kyle, or not? Um, I would say that's about what we would teach for shoulder tilt. I would say the, what it looks to me, and this is, you know, it's easier to see this in person, but it looks like more of the problem is with the weight on the front foot. It looks like you do have the shoulder tilt, but you still have a lot of weight on the front foot. And your the other thing I'd say as well is your hands are over top of the ball, if not slightly further forward than the ball. And when you do that, you're kind of taking loft off of the club face. If you move your hands slightly back, then you're not, you're letting the natural loft of the club sit where it is or even add a little bit of loft to it. And is that also kind of a result? I mean, is that kind of a microcosm of not having the ball f far enough up in the stands? Yeah, definitely could be. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so the 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 weight thing on the front foot because that's something that you know again, um, I, and I'll just openly admit this: I've never had a golf lesson in my life. Well, I shouldn't say that. I've had one golf lesson. I took a golf lesson, Don. You know, this like a year and a half ago. I took a putting lesson from a pro up here in Ames, and. Uh, the dude was oh. eating a sandwich. The, the guy was eating a sandwich the entire time he was talking to me, which he was, listen, he knows what he's talking about. And he gave me some good pointers, but he was eating a sandwich for the entire hour and a half. So anyways, oh, I thought you were talking about the golf lesson I gave you where I didn't even charge you for it. Remember that one? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember that one, Donna. <laughs> um, so, 
so as we play this thing through here, you talk about weight. Um, what gives you the impression that the weight is on the front foot as I come through here, Kyle? Um, so the first thing I would say is, it, and again, this is harder to see from the front view here instead of the side view. Um, but as you turn your club face back, uh, one thing with getting your weight on your back foot is we want to see your back leg basically flat. If you look at Rory McIlroy, one thing that he does is as he turns his shoulders back, you can see the weight go onto his back foot and then you see his, his back leg completely straighten out. And what that does is if you, if you even just stand up and you go on, on the ground, if your knee is bent and you try and push off of the ground, it's harder to generate force. If your leg is flat and there's no give in your leg, then as you push off of that leg, there's kind of a it kind of takes the car up out of it. With that, with that back leg. Yes, with the back leg. The front leg can stay flexed. The back leg we like to see pretty flat. So, w- would you say that where where this where you what you see right now with those two legs, that's not what you want to see. You don't want to see. I it, it just it just all, all it looks like is there's the the it does look like the weight's too much on the front foot. Um, and then I'd be curious. The other thing I'd be curious to see is if the weight is too much on your toes, because that can be another thing. If you're kind of weight on the front foot and too much on the toes where you're kind of leaning towards the ball, that can be another thing that takes loft off. Don, any comments? No, I don't know enough to say much really. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Well, let me, let me just throw this disclaimer out there. I want to, and people who've been following this show long enough know I had two shoulder surgeries um, a year and a half to two years ago. One was a pretty easy shoulder surgery. The other one was a a labrum repair. And Kyle, you and I have talked about this because you've had shoulder issues in the past as well. And I'm certainly no uh, professional golfer. I'm certainly no collegiate golfer like yourself. But that has, I can tell everything I do, whether it's basketball, football, golf, in any form, um, it changes even just basic motions. I don't know, Don, maybe this would be a good question for you or someone like John Streif, but I think that changes how my mind triggers my, just those actions. Just, I mean, basic movements that I was used to doing prior to surgery, I have not been able to completely retrain my brain to become comfortable with those motions again. It's uh, something that we talk about a lot with golfers that have had injuries. I had um, my freshman year of college, I tore the muscle that, or partially tore the muscle that was connected to my spine. And then I had some bone injuries in my back after that as a result. And then I also had um, an issue with my labrum and my rotator cuff later on in college. And one thing that we talk about is, yes, you're healthy, but are you still protecting yourself during your swing? Because if you're instinctively like tightening the muscles around the injured muscle, so the first thing we would do is with shoulder, I would loosen my neck and my back attaching to my shoulder because those are the muscles that are going to tighten to protect that area, right? So we try to get players healthy, and then we also try to loosen them up so that when they so that they get the, enough confidence in the body part that was injured to the point where they're not protecting it through the swing. Because if if you're pulling like I when I had my shoulder injury when I was pulling my arm in I was kind of my my arm was if you pulled down on my wrist during my shoulder issues the arm would have halfway come out of the socket so 
I was pulling in with my shoulder, kind of keeping it tight to my body and wasn't fully extending. So like I hit some straight up like tops just because I was pulling the club in and kind of up and raising the bottom of the club. You know, the other thing about this is uh, for at least the surgery that I had and that injury, uh, I, I would agree with what you just said, Kyle. I know maybe slightly difference, but for the record, I dislocated my shoulder 30, 40, 50 times over the course of a number of years. And so that's, you know, when you have that happen over again, and it, and it happened, it happened for me golfing several times um, with different clubs. So when your body's used to this motion and, oh, I've actually dislocated, I've actually dislocated both shoulders golfing, which is what's really odd. <laughs> really well, yeah. strange. I, I, you said that to me. We have never seen that. I talked to my, um, business partner about that and he has neither of us have ever seen somebody dislocate their back shoulder playing golf because <laughs> when you extend when you extend through your your front arm it makes sense that your arm is kind of flying out of the socket your your back arm is rotating and it's staying in until the very end of the swing so most of the force is on the ball of the socket to stay in the joint not to pull out so it, it had to be right at the very end of that swing, didn't it? Well, keep in mind, I'm a right hand. I'm a I'm a righty, yeah. And it's it was my right shoulder. So you didn't you didn't dislocate your left shoulder? No, I did. But I'm saying my my over and over injuries were with the right shoulder. My two surgeries were right shoulder. Okay, those were the surgeries. Okay, that makes so you're sense. saying that was a more that's a, a more of a rare. That's. That's more of a rare one for sure. The one that I had was my right shoulder, but I'm left-handed. So let me tell you what happened real quick. And I know we're losing. Well, actually, we're still at 185 people, so maybe we want to keep doing this. Uh, but just so you're aware, I, I first injured the right shoulder years ago. I think I was at some trampoline park, like 10, 15, well, probably 10 years ago, right? 15 years ago, and um, dislocated the right shoulder. I had the, I had it happen playing basketball. Had it happen playing football. Um, had it happen golfing but then in two th i want to say like 2019 i had never dislocated my left shoulder before i go to top golf in omaha and i don't have my clubs i'm just playing with these top golf clubs and I, of course i'm trying to work with my swing and okay how can i make some adjustments i'm like okay i need to really focus on extension right extension through i do that one time <laughs> focus on extension one time i come through and out out comes the left shoulder I'm like, what is happening? That was a painful drive back. Like you got some really good extension. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent extension. But anyway, so that's my story. And, and by the way, uh, David says uh, you need to slow your swing down on the driver. You agree with that, Kyle? Um, I would say your tempo is fine. The only thing I would say is a little bit quick is the transition between the backswing and the downswing. That's probably the only place where you can slow it down just a but I wouldn't say it's horrible. Certainly not with the irons. Okay. Anything else, Don? Uh, I was just going to mention to Kyle. Kyle, one thing I always try to think of in driving the ball, I continually remind myself, if I get in trouble, I get I get too fast with my swing, and maybe I uh, my swing involves too much lateral movement of my weight. And so I'm just continually reminding myself this simple thought, stay behind the ball with my swing. Uh, and, you know, other, otherwise I tend to shift my weight to my front foot too much, maybe even in short of impact. 
And if I stay behind the ball, I seem to hit with more power. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, the, that- la- the lateral movement is something like if you actually watch my swing from sideways. When I was a kid, my first movement would be to to shift backwards. Actually, yeah, and I I haven't got rid of it completely because it's such a natural habit. I've been playing golf since I was two years old, so I've been swinging a club, you know, twenty four seven basically for almost twenty years. But um, one thing we would talk about: there's actually sports scientists that do this, and maybe this is a little bit boring for everybody, but they put um, kind of a, like electrode pads and they stick them on the golfers. And they, they track where the energy comes from and how it gets to the club head and then administers into the ball. And it, it most of it comes from that vertical push up from the ground. So when you sway sideways, you negate some of your ability to push up. The more you sway sideways, the harder it is to push vertically. And when you push vertically, that's where you get all of your power from. So huh. Interesting. By the way, uh, David, I have went through physical, believe me, I've been through physical therapy more than any person my age should have to. That's a, uh, that's how, how long have you spent in rehab in your life? <laughs> um, too long, way too long. Uh, I've been to physical therapy, uh, at least three different stints for my shoulder. I want to say, um, right knee, um, shoulder neck combo in 20, I want to say 2020, um, That might be it. Yeah. But those were three. I mean, as you know, Kyle, you've been through, I'm sure you've been through physical therapy. It's uh, every, every stint is a stint. <laughs> well, I, I was just going to say to coach Don, I think we finally found something that Corey has in common with Tiger Woods. <laughs> he's, all, he's always injured. I will say, I will say I am a, I love watching Tiger. Um, I have told you this before, Kyle, I have a hard time watching golf when tiger's not competing and i've openly admitted that what is his timeline right now does he have or are we going to expect him out playing professional golf anytime soon i would expect tiger woods from here on out the rest of his golf life to play two to three of the major championships a year i think he's going to try to play in the hero world challenge which for those of you that don't know that's tiger woods tournament that he hosts the genesis invitational which is another one that he hosts and then um there's a variety of things he can do with his son who his son is actually breaking out as a, as a junior golf superstar. He hasn't done anything on the national level yet. Cause he's not old enough to, but um, just the other week he shot a, like a 66 in a, in a tournament and he's like 15 years old. So he's a lot of his focus is shifting towards that. I would say if we see Tiger Woods more than four times a year, actually competing, we're very, very lucky. He's, he's fair to say that Tiger would probably like to compete with his son at some point. He would, and there's a, there's a golf tournament that happens in December every year. It's actually coming up soon, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a father-son or, well, parent-child duo. Um, a lot of famous names come out, like Gary Player and his son. Uh, the Nicholases used to do it. I know uh, Justin Thomas and his dad, Mike Thomas, come out and play in it. So they, Tiger and Charlie have played in it together for the last several years and, and drawn a lot of publicity doing it, so... We're, we're hopefully can play in that this year. That is the one that I would say he's really, really wanting to play until his son's 18. Cause once he's 18, he goes and plays college golf. Then that might, he, he might not do that anymore, but that's, that's one he, I know he really cares about. Well, Don, before we, uh, before we totally lose our sanity here at 1230 in the morning, um, <laughs> give me some final thoughts on Iowa Northwestern. We talked about this matchup earlier and Kyle, you can hang around for this. We talked about this matchup earlier. 
Don, give us some things to watch for on Saturday. And, of course, a game being played at Wrigley Field always makes things uh, that much more intriguing. Yeah, it does. Um, I, I think some change. You know, we <clears throat> we don't want to play from behind. We know we're not very good at that. So we got to get off to a decent start. But here's the reality. Even if we're up by 17 to start the fourth quarter, Let's not forget that they outscored Minnesota 21-zip in the fourth quarter. Now, I don't think they can do that to us because I don't think Phil's going to allow that. Uh, incidentally, the reason they got back in that game is Minnesota went with the infamous prevent defense, you know, the one that always prevents you from winning. Uh, so that's how they really got got the ball rolling there in the fourth quarter. And uh, as you know, they beat them in overtime based on that 21 nothing in the fourth and a touchdown in overtime. So um, we need to win on turnovers. We need to win on field position. We need to uh, we need to be prepared for the possibility that they'll extend plays. The quarterback worries me because he's mobile. We just need to hold coverage down the field because they in, in flush situations they will look to try to hit something big down the field. That's smart football. You know, just so you're aware, Kyle, I think Corey's heard me say this. Years ago, 1985, we learned that was our one loss at Ohio State, right, in the regular season. There were a couple of situations in which our receivers in flush situations, they were working parallel line of scrimmage, and a DB, a defensive player, I should say, a linebacker typically, undercut our receiver because he was running parallel line of scrimmage. He undercut us, intercepted the ball twice in that one game. Right then we said, never again. So from that point forward, here's the way we coached it. If it's a flush situation as a receiver, you do one of things. You either work deep down the field or you come back toward the line of scrimmage, but you do not work parallel because to work parallel is to about an interception. <clears throat> so this will make sense to you guys. If you need a big play, what are you going to do, Kyle, if the quarterback flushes? First off, you need to work in the direction he's working. If he's flushing to the right, you need to be running a route somewhere to the right because he can't find you all the way back across the field. He's under duress. So if he's working right, you work right. But but if you need a big play, work down the field. It's amazing how often DBs are kind of shut down mentally. When a quarterback flushes, their focus goes to the quarterback sometimes to the point that they actually lose sight of a receiver that's all of a sudden behind them down the field. You see that all the time. Even in the NFL, you see it sometimes. So we have to be prepared to hold coverage in flush situations because I would expect Northwestern to try to try to um, try to uh, fabricate a big play off of the flush. Uh, and the other possibility, if you just need a first down to win the game, of course, maybe now you're content to come back toward the line of scrimmage, knowing that a gain of five gives you that that first down that you need to run off the clock. So in that situation, why break deep downfield? Go for a more high percentage pass. But again, don't work parallel. Work back toward the line. Keep that defender. If there's one that's trying to undercut you, keep him on your backside. You know, and he can't he can't undercut you simply because you're working back toward the quarterback to some some degree. Hope that makes sense. What I think is amazing is that uh, you look at that Iowa or the, excuse me that Northwestern Minnesota game. You mentioned it, Don. You had a 21 point lead. Gophers have a 21 point lead in the fourth quarter. They also won that turnover battle. They were plus one on turnovers. But then you look at Maryland Northwestern, and um, Northwestern took care of the ball. They were uh, they were plus two on turnovers in that game, 
uh, excuse me, Minnesota was minus one in turnovers. Uh, Northwestern was plus two in turnovers against Maryland. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's pretty fair to say if Iowa takes care of the ball, that's a big if. We saw them turn the ball over three times at home against Minnesota the other day. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, Cal- you're aware of this, Corey. Kyle's not aware. Uh, I worked up a prediction model based on all 64 games played a year ago. It was a prediction model involving five parameters, Kyle. And long story short, if you won the majority of those five parameters, maybe you win three to two, maybe you win two to one with a couple of ties. But if you win more than the opponent, you won the game 100% of the time last year. Your record was 58-0, and there were six ties. But that's the first time I've ever found a prediction model that was 100% accurate over an entire season of Big Ten play. Here's the rest of the story. That same prediction model this year has already had one foul up, and that was the game, Minnesota-Northwestern. Minnesota won three of those five, and yet they found a way to lose the game. And it's just unfortunate that it happened that way, uh, but it did. So um, that prediction model that was sent last year is already going to something less than 100% this year. And I can thank the Fighting Flex for that because they managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory against the Northwestern Wildcats. And back in the day, they were Wildcats, but not anymore. They're, they're a little bit on the ferocious side now. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry, I muted myself. Iowa Northwestern, Saturday, 2.30 p.m. Central Time uh, on Peacock. The mighty Peacock, Don. You got Peacock? My wife signed us up for it just because she didn't want me to miss the game. Okay, because you were at the other game that you were at that other game that was on Peacock. You were in person for that one. So you got had to get Peacock for the game you're not going to. You're gonna be with me live shortly following the end of the game, right? You don't got a game you're doing for the Missouri Valley on Saturday. I do not. I'm gonna be taking notes during the game and I'll be ready to jump on the air as soon as you are. Okay, folks. Iowa Northwestern Saturday on Peacock, 2.30 p.m. Central Time. Uh, Lots more as far as coverage right here from the Hawkeye of the Storm, men's basketball, women's basketball, football, et cetera. We'll talk to you Saturday following the Hawks and the Wildcats.